I think that from the perspective of a manufacturer, they're only putting in a small amount of lead. Mm. 1%. Intuitively, it doesn't feel like that much, right? It's just a splash of lead. Yeah. Just a little bit. It's just a tad. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think it's not intuitive, like, how bad that could be. Like, mm. one one way of, of communicating it is that if you had, like, a little sugar sachet, you know, the type that you would get at a cafe to put in your coffee, if that was filled with lead dust and you sprinkled it across an area the size of an American football field, that level of lead loading... Um, would be sufficient to cause lead poisoning if a child spent time in that environment. So a very, very small amount of lead can have these really toxic effects. And that's not intuitive. That's pretty surprising. So I think that's probably how people think about it. But often manufacturers, in in some of our experience, will move really quickly. Like sometimes days after we show them the results, they've ordered their non-lead alternative ingredients. Hey listeners, Rob Woodland here, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I know many of you subscribe for our more distinctive coverage of topics related to global catastrophic risks. But even if you only listen to the occasional episode on global health and development, this one should be one of them. Lead Exposure Elimination Project, or LEAP, has been one of the most successful organizations I've ever heard of being founded. Lead is crazy toxic to children, uh, and it's still an enormous problem in much of the world. And LEAP is making serious headway on tackling it in so many countries, despite having such a limited budget. So I was super psyched to speak with its founder, Dr. Lucia Coulter, who, as you'll hear, is super knowledgeable about the impacts of lead, uh, how people are still getting exposed, why LEAP has managed to smash it out of the park so far, what alternatives approaches to lead elimination they've considered and rejected, uh, and what other opportunities to tackle lead might be even better than what they're doing and what the case is for and against them. LEAP's story and the lessons, the generalizable lessons that come from it are something that I think you you really ought to know. Uh, Lucia also talks about how she managed to start this really successful organization despite having very limited relevant experience because, uh, in significant part, she got the support of the Charity Entrepreneurship Incubation Program. She also explains why she pledged to give away 10% of her income to highly effective charities uh, when she was an undergraduate. Uh, and I push back a little on whether that is a good idea for everyone necessarily. Plus, she and I recorded this in person in London, and we just have a lot of great bands. If you feel inspired by this conversation and tend to give to global health and development causes, and you haven't done your holiday giving yet, uh, you could do a whole lot worse than head to leadelimination.org and give some lovely young babies the gift of not getting lead poisoning at an expected cost of less than $2 per child. And if you feel even more excited about Leap uh, than that, uh, do note that they are about to hire a couple of project managers. Um, those job ads should go up on the 20th of December. But if you go to leadelimination.org slash jobs, uh, you can actually join a mailing list now and get notified about those positions uh, when they do go up. Without further ado, I bring you Lucia Coulter. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lucia Coulter. Lucia studied medicine at Cambridge University, and during her studies, published some peer-reviewed research on public health, taught microbiology and parasitology, and gained clinical experience in Sierra Leone. After graduating, she worked as a medical doctor in the UK's National Health Service. But in 2020, uh, Lucia made a big career change and went through Charity Entrepreneurship's incubation program in London. This led her to found Lead Exposure Elimination Project, or LEAP, a health policy nonprofit working to reduce childhood lead exposure, uh, no no great surprise there, uh, in low- and middle-income countries. That's because she believed lead exposure in low- and middle-income countries 
countries was far more harmful than commonly appreciated and extremely neglected by non-profits and philanthropists. While it's only been around for three years, as we're about to hear, Leap has already had a, a remarkable string of successes and has a lot of big fans out there who I'm sure are going to be very excited to listen to this, uh, listen to this interview. As if that story wasn't badass enough, Lucia is also a member of Giving What We Can, having pledged to give 10% of her income to the most effective charities that she can find. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Lucia. Hi, thanks so much. It's really great to be here. I hope to talk about some thought bubbles I had about how to get more sweeping lead elimination, as well as the completely mad story of lead being put right into food in Bangladesh. But first, most people probably have a reasonable sense that it's not healthy to chow down on a handful of lead. But is it possible to give us an intuitive sense of just how bad lead is for your health? Yeah, so lead is extremely toxic. One way to think about why is that basically it it mimics calcium and other metal ions that serve these essential functions in pretty much every part of the body. And uh, we've evolved for the vast majority of our history in an environment where lead was buried in the earth. And so our cells are just not well adapted to tolerate any of this interference. And it interrupts many different subcellular processes, and that affects pretty much every organ system. So we could think about it in terms of like, what would the impact be on the average child in a low middle income country? The average child in a low or middle income country has a blood level of around five micrograms per deciliter. And that's high enough to cause like health, educational and um, economic impacts. Um, So a child with that blood lead level would have a reduction in IQ anywhere from around like one to six IQ points, depending on like which analysis you you take. Um, and then that in turn will affect their future earning potential. They'll also have reduced educational attainment. There was a recent analysis by the Center for Global Development that pretty conservatively concluded that that would be equivalent to around uh, one year of lost schooling. And then it also has causes an increased likelihood of cardiovascular disease and mortality from cardiovascular disease. And that could be as high as a relative risk of uh, around 1.5 at the average level of lead exposure um, that children have in low-middle income countries. That's according to a a recent analysis of, of US data. And then on top of all of that, it increases risk of kidney disease, anemia, uh, fetal health problems, behavioral disorders, ADHD, um, and possibly even mental health problems and dementia. Yeah. Yeah. So so one thing is lead, because we evolved for so long in an environment where lead was not present, we also don't have any bodily process for removing lead. Uh, So it tends to just hang around in the body for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it ends up in all kinds of different tissues. I think in adults, often it can end up in the bones and it tends to hang around there a long time and then gradually leach out over decades even. But it's not something that you just consume and then uh, pee out uh, very quickly. It it hangs around for a long time. And as you're saying, it, it mimics other metal ions that we do need to use. And so it interferes with all kinds of different enzymes throughout the body that are doing just the basic work of a cell. It's getting in there and just screwing them up constantly. It's also like mimicking calcium ions in the brain. So it gets into the brain and then it screws up the ability to send signals between neurons. And that's particularly dangerous when children are very young and their brains are developing because that's such like a complex and delicate process, which is why it has such a severe impact on young children by impacting the way that their their brains are forming and all those neurons are connecting in the very early years. Yeah. Yeah. So so just given that it can interfere with so many different bodily processes, I guess in the places where we've checked and we've been able to see it, we can measure big damages that it's causing. And you might guess that in other organs, 
maybe the damage in, to the spleen or to the, oh, I guess well, we're saying the kidneys, it is a serious issue, or, the, or perhaps the liver. Mm. Maybe it's not as severe in other organs, but you would just guess that it's messing up enzymes there too and probably just causing all kinds of like micro damage uh, mm. throughout every every cell more or less in, in as much as you have a reasonable amount inside you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and what you said about how it's kind of deposited in the bones. Um, so it's deposited in the bones, but then it also kind of is released from the bones at kind of a relatively constant rate but then there are periods in your life particularly in women so when women are pregnant um, their bones will release more lead because they're releasing calcium for the baby to absorb and then that is absorbed by the baby so the mother can actually pass the lead um, that they've accumulated through their lifetime to a baby which is pretty concerning and then when women go through menopause again their bones um, change in their structure and the lead is again released into their blood which can probably increase the harms of lead at that time so there's a lot of really scary stuff going on in there yeah. Okay. So we've got the effects on brain development where at levels that are quite common, kind of even in the UK or US and very common, I think, in, in, in poorer countries mm-hmm. around, uh, you're saying five micrograms per... Uh, deciliter. Deciliter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I'm just going to start using the numbers, I think, with this because uh, yeah. that's, that's a bit of a mouthful. So we're yeah. talking about like five, 10, 15 is yeah. different blood levels. Yeah. Even at that level, it's causing one to six IQ point uh, mm-hmm. loss. It's causing, uh, and, you know, as a result, or basically, uh, the, the, the same thing as to say it's causing people to do worse at school, uh, mm-hmm. to, to be less able to to be productive at work. It's also increasing people's risk of cardiovascular problems by 50%, is what you're saying. And that's at kind of pretty pretty standard levels, not even, you know, exceptional levels of, yeah. of lead. It's also been accused of a bunch of other stuff as well, right? So, so you're saying there's mental health. There's also, I've heard there's a link between people being exposed to lead and committing crimes and just generally engaged in uncontrolled, impulsive behavior. Do, do, do you know how strong the evidence is for that? Um, there have been two recent kind of meta-analyses looking at this. I think they identified some some publication bias in the literature, but still identified that there's probably a real link. Um, I think it was something like maybe somewhere between 7 and 30% of the variance in crime in the US since the 70s might be explained by changes in lead exposure. Okay. Yeah. So, so quite substantial. Yeah, I guess this is all of this stuff is a little bit hard to prove and pin down yes, very precisely yes, because is. lead is so clearly toxic. You could never run an experiment where you gave half the kids a bunch of lead and saw what happened. So we're forced to use kind of natural experiments where we see random variation that occurs in how much lead people are exposed to and then look at the outcomes or try to do controlled studies where, you know, we control for someone's age and their socioeconomic status and then see whether lead has some additional effect. But none of it is super precise. So in countries where lead is a more serious problem, where they haven't really gotten on top of this in the way that the US or or UK mostly have, how large could the effects be there on children who are currently getting exposed to kind of alarming levels of lead? So do you mean kind of like overall estimates for the the burden in low-middle-income countries? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thinking, I I suppose, how much might it reduce someone's healthy life expectancy might be one measure. Mm. I guess there's so many different channels of harm here that it's a little bit hard to know what, you know, you could use dollars, you could use, yeah, years of healthy life expectancy. You can also use school results or, uh, you know, IQ measurements. Yeah, I think um, one way to kind of, like, summarize some of that is to look at, like, kind of overall daily burdens um, and that sort of thing. So um, it's estimated that in low- and middle-income countries, Around 20 million dalis uh, per year are caused by by lead exposure. That's by estimated by the Global Burden Disease Study. And estimates for like cardiovascular disease mortality vary quite a lot. Mm. Estimates vary from around 1.6 million deaths a year to to 5.5. 
the vast majority of those being in low-middle income countries. Um, and then the economic toll, again, the estimates vary. So from around a trillion dollars of lost income a year to around $2.4 trillion, this is international dollars. Mm. Hey everyone, uh, we talk a bunch about dailies here. Uh, dailies are, just to remind everyone, uh, are disability adjusted life years. So one daily would represent someone's healthy life being shortened by a year uh, or the quality of their health being halved for two years. Uh, for example, if they had a severe chronic health problem uh, for, for that time. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think there's some controversy in the kind of public health world about just how bad lead is for you, right? Mm. Uh, I think there's been some recent estimates that have pushed up the estimates for how much harm is being done quite substantially by like two or five X. Mm. Did you know, uh, w- what is the nature of the disagreement in, in as much as there is one? Yeah, so this like upper estimate, the 5.5 is from um, a World Bank report that was released in The Lancet just a few weeks ago. And I think it's basically derived from regressions of blood levels on cardiovascular mortality in the US and trying to control for a bunch of things and then applied to like the global population. Um, so I think I haven't looked into this much yet. Paper only came out quite recently, um, and I haven't haven't had a chance. But I, I, I guess that the biggest problem would be, you know, whether or not it was possible to control for things enough to basically see. see if the controls are doing enough. Um, and then the the other estimate, the lower estimate, the one point six, is from the Global Burden of Disease Study, and I think that's more likely to be an underestimate. Basically, it only looks at the mechanism of lead exposure impacting cardiovascular disease through hypertension, so through increased blood pressure. And we know that there are there seem to be substantial effects on cardiovascular disease through other mechanisms as well, um, like more directly damaging arteries and that sort of thing. So something in that range. Something like, in that range. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't been particularly consequential for, for us. Um, even the lower, the lower number is extremely high and it makes interventions addressing that exposure look really very cost-effective if they work. So, yeah. Yeah, I, suppose, I mean, these days there's something like 600,000 uh, children die of malaria every year. And yeah. I guess, you know, malaria is a, is a, is a big deal. Uh, it's kind of a, one of the most ridiculous things uh, that we haven't managed to eliminate these deaths from a disease that is uh, so so straightforward to, to prevent. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you're saying the lower estimate is that lead is causing three times that many deaths exclusively via its effects on cardiovascular health. We're talking really big numbers. And in terms of underestimating the effect, a really interesting tidbit that I learned while doing background research for this is that in terms of the, the, the health literature, if exposure to lead reduces your IQ below 85, then that counts as a health impact, uh, you know, an, an official health impact, because now you kind of have a learning disability. Mm. If it reduces your IQ from 100 to 95, that doesn't count as having any health impact at all, because 95 is still considered a normal, a normal IQ. Yeah. And I think by any normal standard, any parent would not really want their kid to, to lose five IQ points. Uh, so it really systematically underestimates the impact that it's having on people's well-being. Yeah, I think that's right. And there are probably also other health impacts that aren't included in these sorts of estimates. And there are very few estimates that actually try and like aggregate all of the different types of harms that lead exposure does, health, education, society, crime, um, income. So it's pretty it's pretty huge. Yeah, one estimate I heard was that the total damage done by lead each year across all of these different mechanisms was estimated to be 7% of global GDP. Mm. Uh, do, do you understand where that estimate is coming from? So I think that 7% comes from this World Bank paper that came out a few weeks ago, and it includes the impact of lead exposure on IQ, which then has an impact on earnings. So the kind of total earnings lost from having a low IQ. And then the other thing it would add to that is the impact of 
led on cardiovascular disease mortality and then kind of converting that lost life into an economic value um, and then taking that total economic loss and looking at what that is equivalent to in terms of a percentage of GDP. I think that's probably what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So even that doesn't really incorporate necessarily all the other kind of economic consequences or health consequences, but for the reasons that we talked about before, might be an, an overestimate in some ways. Anyway. Yeah. If I understand correctly, 40 years ago, about 90% of people's exposure to lead in rich countries, at least, was coming via leaded petrol, which mm. has now been almost completely eliminated uh, everywhere. Uh, well, I guess except for Avgas. This is one one crazy yeah. thing that I learned is that we haven't figured out a way to run planes safely without putting lead in the petrol there, uh, which is still now a made, is one of the now the top reasons that people still get exposed to lead in countries like the UK or, or, the, or the US. But anyway, yeah, as a result of getting rid of leaded gasoline, we've seen a massive decrease in lead levels in children in the, in, in the US by around 90% since the late 70s and probably something in that ballpark for the UK and Australia. Although I think the data on that is kind of surprisingly rickety. I, it was a little bit hard to find any, any good systematic studies of that uh, recent, in recent years. But an interesting thing is that the research suggests that most damage is done by the first bits of lead that you get exposed to. It's actually kind of the, the first milligram that's doing the most damage per milligram. And then, and then you get kind of gradually declining damage, which is kind of intuitive. But I, I suppose the mechanism might be that as you get exposed to more and more lead, kind of all the damage that can be done by lead <laughs> specifically has already been done uh, and it kind of runs out of low-hanging fruit <laughs> to harm you even more. Yeah. Anyway, if that's the case, the damage that lead is, is doing to people's health, even in rich countries where, where the exposure levels have been reduced 90%, could still be really quite meaningful and it's not necessarily enough to reduce it 90%. You, you really want to reduce it by more like 99 or 99.9% uh, in order to feel comfortable that, that we've done enough. And one thing I'll just note is that, you know, listeners might recall all of the news coverage of Flint, Michigan a couple of years ago, where they screwed up something about their water supply and children were getting exposed to lead above the US's per permitted limits. But the, the, the blood lead levels uh, that led to the, uh, the declaration of a national emergency in the US are just completely standard in, in India. There, there they had, I think, 5% of the children in that city had uh, blood lead levels above 5. Mm. But I think two-thirds of children in India have that level of, of lead in their blood. So, and, you know, and that's just regarded as completely normal in a yeah. matter of course. It's, it's kind of crazy. Anyway, that, that, that is a huge lead into the question of how many uh, times more damage is lead doing in countries that LEAP operates in as opposed to countries like the US or UK where, where most listeners live? Yeah. It's it's really crazy, that statistic. So LEAP operates in low middle income countries and 95% of the global burden of lead poisoning, roughly, is concentrated in low middle income countries. So yeah, so in um, low middle income countries, the average blood level is around five micrograms per deciliter, which is classified as lead poisoning. So like on average, almost children have lead poisoning. And in high income countries, the average childhood blood lead level is around one microgram per deciliter. Mm. It's a bit lower than that in the US. And like you say, the data is like not amazing anywhere on this, but it's about five times lower in high income countries. And the, the Flint, Michigan example is really stark. I think that was a huge crisis, having 5% of children in Flint, Michigan with, with lead poisoning. But the fact that just every single day, 50% of children in low and middle income countries have that level of lead poisoning um, is really, really concerning, really troubling. Yeah. We've known for at least 100 years that lead is poisonous. Um, I guess we can kind of see that because France banned leaded paint in 1909. Uh, I think they were one of the first countries to do it. But nonetheless, they thought it was sufficiently dodgy that there was lead going in paint in houses that they banned it 110 years ago. And apparently even the ancient Romans suspected that lead was bad for you. I guess they, they probably didn't have, you know, gold standard randomized controlled trials here. But uh, they probably noticed that people who worked in lead mines ended up ext with extreme he health problems and, uh, and, and figured out that uh, lead, lead was probably bad for you. Is there a simple reason why this problem hasn't already been solved? That 
why didn't we know in the 19th century to stop adding lead to stuff that people were going to be eating? I think it's it's a good question. I, I think it's probably not that simple an answer. I think to start with, lead is just a really useful metal. It's abundant, it's malleable, it's durable, and it, its compounds make loads of really helpful things like strong glazes, bright pigments, anti-knocking fuels. Um, I think in the 20s, the industry in the US described um, lead as a gift from God because it's just like <laughs> such a great, such a great thing. So I think like people will just like keep using it unless they aren't able to, unless they're like strongly incentivized not to. I think another reason is that there is extremely low awareness of both the prevalence of lead poisoning, the harms of lead poisoning, and the um, sources of exposure. Low awareness kind of generally, but also among like important decision makers, important institutions, and low-middle-income country governments and funders. I guess that leads to the question, like, what, why is the awareness so low? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe this is a um, something yeah. that a historian should be looking into. Yeah. Is understanding, you know, what were like, maybe they could find some mentions in parliamentary records or something mm. from the 19th century of people raising the question of uh, whether lead was safe. That there must have been some yeah. stuff written about it uh, if if it was banned in France in 1909. Yeah. Uh, but why is it that that didn't win the day? Why is it that uh, industry that wanted to add lead to things won out the the debate? Yeah, I, I always wonder if if one part of it is just like the the really like invisible nature of, of lead as a, as a poison. I mean, of, of course, the impact aren't invisible, millions of, of deaths and, and trillions of dollars in, in lost income. But the fact that lead is the cause is not apparent. It's not apparent when you're being exposed to the lead, like the paint just looks like any other paint. The cookware looks like any other kind of cookware. And also, if you are suffering the effects of lead poisoning, you know, if you have cognitive impairment and, and heart disease, you're not going to think, oh, it was that lead it's exposure. Lead, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, like, it's, it's just not going to be clear. I guess it's an issue yeah. with, we, we tend to treat specific uh, acute diseases and be very aware of that, but then everyone suffering some relatively small chronic impact just yeah. doesn't really rise to the level of anyone's notice and cause yeah. a public outcry. Yep, exactly. And and the symptoms aren't like specifically characteristic of the cause. It's not like, um, you know, malaria, you get cyclical fevers. It's like obviously something going on here. I think yeah. that's part of it as well. I have this perception that lead is kind of having a moment, or at least I hear a lot more yeah. about lead than I did uh, did five years ago. Is my perception correct that uh, people are talking more about lead than they used to? Maybe you're the worst person to ask this. Yeah, because... I mean, definitely <laughs> in my circles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are just talking lead all the time. Yeah, what's yeah. that about? No, I think there's something to that. I was thinking about this recently and also um, asking a couple of people who've kind of been around in, in lead longer than yeah. me what the reason might be. I don't really know. I think a few reasons I could think of one is that the Global Burden of Disease Study started looking at risk factors, and Global Burden of Disease Study is, is really influential, and it started including lead as a risk factor um, and communicating about the impacts of, of lead exposure globally. And in, in 2019, the Global Burden of Disease data reported that one in three children globally have lead poisoning. Um, and then there was this toxic truth report, which was authored by UNICEF and Pure Earth that used that statistic. And I think that was really powerful. So maybe that had something to do with it. There's also been a lot of pretty influential academic publications. There was like a, a Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health, which said that like one in, one in six deaths globally are due to pollution. There was this Ericsson et al. meta-analysis that said that 50%, almost 50% of kids in low-middle-income countries have, have lead poisoning. Mm. And then more recently, there was as well Bank Report, which I think is making a splash as well. So maybe these things are contributing. I think GiveWell's played a role. GiveWell's recommended grants that um, in the, the lead space, and there hasn't really been much funding around historically for, for work on lead. The Center for Global Development is running a working group, which I think is a bit of, bit of a focus for actors in lead. Yeah, so 
I don't know if these things are causes or or symptoms, but I think you're right. Yeah. There's something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess a very simple answer would be that it's a huge deal. So it's no surprise that people yeah. are paying attention to it now. Maybe what we need to explain is, well, why the question of before? why in 2000s weren't people talking about this much more. Yeah. yeah. All right. That, that's enough about lead as a problem at, at a high level. Let, let's talk about the Lead Exposure uh, Elimination Project. We'll get to more recent events later, but can you start by telling us this amazing story of some of the very first things that you did? Yeah. Earlier the story, uh, what did LEAP set out to attempt in Malawi? Um, yeah. So our goal in Malawi was to first find out is lead paint a problem here? There was like no data to begin with. And then to find out if it is, could we support the government to act on it? So we went to Malawi, we partnered with the University of Malawi, and we conducted some basic market analysis, and then bought every brand of paint that we could find, um, three colors of each. And we dried them and sent them to a lab and, and got them analyzed for lead. And we found that 57% of the samples that we tested had very high levels of lead which was kind of surprising. I mean, we, we knew regionally this is this is likely, but we were like, wow, this is really a thing and, and no one knows this is a thing. That's Yeah. Was it high levels even by the standards of leaded paint or just, you know, t- typical for, for paint that's, that's leaded a lot? Yeah, so varying, but kind of some over 1% lead. That's, it's not that untypical for leaded paint, but the limit is less than 90 parts per million and we're talking like 10,000 parts per million. So, yeah, so it's like 100x what would be the yeah, safe level. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So we brought that to the Ministry of Health and the Malawi Bureau of Standards, and they were really receptive. The Malawi Bureau of Standards basically said that they had thought that this practice had been phased out years ago. Like, understandably, they're like, we thought this was an outdated technology. And so although they had a standard in place, a mandatory standard, um, it wasn't being monitored and enforced because it just wasn't known to be a problem and that this data was a real kind of eye-opener. And at that point, they, they immediately committed to implementing the regulation. Um, so that was really a great start and happened like more quickly than than we expected that it would. How, how much did it cost to do these tests and uh, how long did it take? Um, so it takes about a week or two to find all the paints, dry them, um, and then you send them to the lab and that takes another week for them to come back. And it costs around $27 a sample. So a study overall will cost less than $5,000. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you just, you let the government know this. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to find the right person to to notify and get them to answer your emails? Um, it was not too difficult. We just reached out to anyone we knew who might have a relevant connection and they'd put us in touch with the next person. We'd ask their advice and like, who should we speak to about this? Who would be the relevant authority? And then they'd connect us to the next person and it, it worked like that. Everyone was like really helpful and really keen to help us like get to the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so it was already illegal to be doing this. Mm-hmm. The paint companies were sticking lead in there yeah. anyway. Maybe they weren't thinking about it that much. The government certainly wasn't thinking about it because they just didn't realize that this was happening at all. Yeah. And once they found out, was there a quick turnaround in actually removing lead from from the paint? So it's a bit of a process to get like enforcement going and to get a regulation implemented. Like it's one thing to have it on the books. It's another thing to have the kind of processes set up to be collecting the right samples, to have a testing capacity, and that sort of thing. So. Over the next like year or two, we were helping um, the Malawi Bureau of Standards, supporting them with testing capacity, updating their regulation to make it more enforceable, and making sure that like the right samples were being collected. It needs to be kind of coloured paints because they're much more likely to be to be leaded than white paints. And in the default, kind of globally, for anyone doing kind of monitoring of a paint industry, would be to just collect white paints. Oh, I see. Um, so you'd naturally miss miss lead in that. Um, so that's a bit of a process, and then. Industry typically is like unlikely to reformulate until they 
feel that there will be consequences. Hmm. So initial... Did, 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 did you call them up and say... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spoke to them before we did the study. Okay. And we said... Uh, you know, are you aware of, of lead as an as an issue in paint and that sort of thing? Broadly, they said that they were aware of it, but that maybe some other manufacturers were doing it, but but not them. Yeah. So then we come back with the results and we say, oh, there is a lot of lead in your paint. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and at like- that point, we offer our support. So we can help in quite a few ways. We can give, we have a paint technologist who's absolutely amazing, who can give really detailed technical support with the switch. Um, we can help them find suppliers of the non-lead raw materials, which can sometimes be a barrier because it's their usual suppliers might not necessarily supply these non-lead alternatives. Um, we also offer to retest their paints for them so they can be confident that they're lead-free and that sort of thing. So um, some of them engaged, some of them didn't really. Some of them said to us, like, oh, I don't I don't really know. Does the Malawi Bureau of Standards really have testing capacity? Do we really have to do this? Um, and so we were like, wow, yeah. That's- that's ballsy to be yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure, you busted us, but we yeah. don't think that you have the testing capacity to yeah. check again officially. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. W- were any of them mortified? Um, n- Sounds not, like no. Not, not that was apparent to me. Mm. I mean, I don't know how they were feeling internally. Um, in like a professional context, you might not really like let yeah. on your real feelings about it. Yeah. I think that from the perspective of a manufacturer, they're only putting in a small amount of lead. Mm. 1%, 1% intuitively doesn't feel like that much, right? It's just a splash of lead. Yeah. Just a little bit. It's just a tad. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think it's not intuitive like how bad that could be. Like mm. one, one way of, of communicating it is that if you had like a little sugar sachet, you know, the type that you would get at a cafe to put in your coffee, if that was filled with lead dust and you sprinkled it across an area the size of an American football field, that level of lead loading um, would be sufficient to cause lead poisoning if a child spent time in that environment. I see. So a very, very small amount of lead can have these really toxic effects. And that's not intuitive. That's pretty surprising. So I think that's probably how people think about it. But often manufacturers, in, in in some of our experience, will move really quickly. Like sometimes days after we show them the results, they've ordered their non-lead alternative ingredients. I see. Um, Do do you know what's motivating those ones to move faster than the others? I think it could be that, you know, they think this is is the right thing to do. And I think sometimes beforehand, it's not always obvious to everyone in the company that lead is being used. The the names of these pigments have, they're called things like lemon chrome, PY34. Mm -hmm. They're not called like lead so, so maybe, maybe some manager finds out and that yeah, manager assumed they weren't using yeah. lead and then when they find out that they were they're like exactly. what are you doing exactly yeah. i think it can also be um brand reputation like mm, um sometimes yeah. if it's like a, a brand with a reputation for being high quality then that could be really important for them and sometimes it's just that they want to you know get ahead of any incoming regulation yeah, or incoming penalties the yeah there's a there's a really inspiring guy from the paint industry he's called johnson onking he is a vp of a, of a big paint company in the Philippines. And when he found out about the use of lead in, in the paints in his company, they switched immediately. And then he's been since kind of advocating for for regulation in the company and also kind of more broadly. And he, he gave a talk for us, for us to show manufacturers. And he speaks really inspiringly about the like the moral responsibility on, on industry. And the way he puts it is like, you have a choice to be like the hero or the bad guy of the story. And that's really, I think that's really cool when it's coming from industry to industry. It's not really, I think, a type of messaging that would be helpful for us to, to say. We should maybe just explain a little bit why, why it is that uh, lead in paint is such an issue because mo- most of us are not in the habit of uh, mm. eating that much paint. But it's, <laughs> uh, it, 
Lead affects kids the most because it gets into their brains as they're developing and basically screws up the wiring, I suppose, as, it, as it's developing. And then and then they have like lifelong uh, learning disability issues. Yeah. And little children, unlike adults, tend to crawl along the floor uh, where where paint, dust and paint chips can, can fall off. And, and they tend to lick things. They tend to stick stuff in their mouth much more than adults do. And so mm. they end up potentially eating paint, basically, or or consuming paint dust incidentally. Yeah. And that's why how it can be quite a significant um, impact on children's light intake, even if it isn't a very big one for adults. Yeah. And then also um, children are smaller. So the same amount of of lead consumed would result in a higher concentration. And then also just biologically, they absorb it more readily as well. Right. So it's all of those reasons. Yeah. In adults, it tends to go into bones, right? Whereas in children, it tends to hang around in their tissues, uh, being able to do more damage. Yes. At least that, that, that's what I read on uh, Wikipedia <laughs> earlier today. F- fingers crossed Wikipedia is, uh, is, is correct on this one. It's very sad that houses are still being painted with lead paint now because that, I mean, in the UK, we have houses that still have lead paint on them from 100 years ago, right? Uh, indeed, included, we, we, <laughs> we'll talk about this later, but you brought in this x-ray gun that can uh, check for lead in, in objects. Uh, we, were, uh, we were using it on, in the office here and we found that some of the old railings uh, in, the, in, in this office still have leaded paint. I, I think you were saying they, they probably have a non-leaded coating over the top, but there's still leaded paint underneath. Anyway, the, the paint that is going on to houses in India with lead today mm. are going to be there for decades, yeah. possibly 100 years in some cases, still poisoning children out into the, into the future because it's so difficult to remove leaded paint once it's on a building. You normally don't strip off all of the, all of the paint completely. You just paint over it. Yeah, exactly. And also a lot of these countries where the lead paint is still on the market, they, they're going through periods of population growth, urbanization, economic development. So there's big growth in the paint market and more and more paint is being put into new homes all the time and it's going to remain a source of exposure for decades to come kind of reminds me of like you know there's a real urgency in stopping this from happening now especially given these these long-term these long-term impacts yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's let's close the loop on the Malawi story a little bit. Mm. So, so what, what has happened since then? Is 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 lead out of paint in in Malawi uh, more or less uh, a couple of years after you did this initial survey? Um, so a few weeks ago, I was back in Malawi and we were doing a follow up study together with the Malawi Bureau of Standards, and we found that there's been a substantial reduction in the amount of lead paint on the market. The biggest brand, which makes up the majority of the lead paint market share appears to have switched to lead-free and other brands have switched to lead-free in their dryers. And there are just a few few remaining smaller brands that are still using lead pigments but are in the process of of reformulation mostly. And they say that they will be have their lead-free paints on the market by early to mid-2024. So most of the lead paint in Malawi looks to have gone now. Yeah. And what remains is probably going to be gone within the next few years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I guess you, you'll follow up or the government in Malawi is going to follow up and make sure that that's the case. Exactly. Basically. Yeah, yeah. They're on it. Okay. So this has cost Leap tens of thousands of dollars and it's cost the Malawi government not very much, I imagine. Uh, we're talking, uh, it's, it's not a lot of staff time. It's not, there's not a lot of resourcing that's required here. And potentially for, you're, you're bringing forward by years, possibly decades, the removal of leaded paint in Malawi, which is going to reduce um, you know, lead exposure for hundreds of thousands, millions of children for, for over, over over many years. You, you tried to do a cost effectiveness analysis, right? Where you looked at, uh, you know, what would be the total health gain? What would be the total economic gain from all of this for every dollar that you spent? Uh, what, what what sort of results did you come up with? Yeah, so we did an initial kind of cost effectiveness analysis in expectation um, towards the beginning of the project, um, and what we did was we tried to compare two scenarios. 
So one in which compliance with lead paint regulation starts to increase quite soon, and that's the kind of leap intervention scenario. And the other scenario is where leap doesn't exist and compliance with regulation starts to increase at some point in the future, which has got nothing to do with leap. And in each scenario, we model out how many homes will be painted with lead paint and uh, how many children will be exposed as a result. And then we take the difference between those two scenarios and look at the health and economic benefits from that averted lead exposure. And the results that we got a few weeks ago put us in line with what we modeled, um, which suggested that it would cost $14 for each disability-adjusted life year equivalent averted. So we're converting economic benefits here into disability-adjusted life year equivalents with like a one dollar is equivalent to 2.5 um, years of average income. And of course, huge uncertainty, loads of assumptions go into this, so lots of caveats. But we've also been working on a new model recently, which I think has got a bit of a better method and also incorporates most of our other countries that we're working in. And the results are looking pretty similar. So that's kind of makes me feel a bit more confident in the results. And then also um, Founders Pledge has conducted a cost-effectiveness analysis on our programs, on a bunch of our programs, and it's also in a similar range. So it looks pretty promising. Okay, so so the idea is, yeah, you've managed to do the goodness equivalent of giving someone an extra year of healthy life uh, in expectation, so kind of on average across all of the different scenarios for $14, which is extremely good value uh, by, by the standards of you know health interventions in the in the developing world. I think that's more effective than the classic charities that that Givewell recommends that reduce uh, malaria and uh, and maybe even the, than the ones that do deworming and so on as well. What are the biggest uncertainties that go into an analysis like that? I imagine there's some things that seem fairly clear and other things that you kind of have to slightly guess a bit. Yeah. So one of the big uncertainties is how many years are we actually bringing forward regulation? It's pretty hard to predict the future. So that's mm. always going to be an uncertainty. And we use different numbers of years for different countries, depending on like what stage of progress they were in to begin with. For Malawi, it was eight years. Another uncertainty is how much is lead paint raising blood lead levels? Um, so like, what is a blood lead level impact if a child grows up in a lead painted home? There's actually surprisingly very, very little data on that. So mm. we try and work that out in a few different ways, mostly looking at data from the US. And then another uncertainty is what do we, what number do we use for the for the health impacts? Um, so we have these daily estimates from the GBD, the Global Burden Disease Study, which is from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. But the numbers from the GBD, so like the 2019 numbers, which are the most recent numbers, they refer to the DALI's experience now by like um, lead exposure that was mainly experienced years ago by mm. like a cohort that was born. Decades ago. Decades ago. Um, So it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily equivalent to the dallies that are being, uh, that lead exposure now is responsible for. Right. Um, right. So things like this. So we try and take account of these things and try and be conservative, but there's always a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, you estimate that it's, uh, you're bringing forward regulation of uh, lead paint in Malawi by eight years. Is Mm. that right? It seems like, Seems like a low number. It seems like, you know, this would yeah. be going on for decades. Uh, could, couldn't this have continued for a, for a very long time without you? I think so, yeah. I think talking to people, like we, we try and calibrate that number by asking our, our partner, our government partners, like, you know, when do you think this would have happened? Um, did you have any plans to do this? And that sort of thing. And our understanding that is it really wasn't on the radar. So it probably would have taken someone else to come and do a paint study for that to change. Yeah, you needed some, some external impetus. Yeah. But, 
As I understand it, in your cost-benefit analysis of, of the Malawi program, you estimated that 80% of the benefits came through higher incomes because children weren't having these uh, these terrible effects on their brain, which then allows them to do better in school and to do better in the, in the workplace later on, later on in life. And only kind of 20% of it came through better health, which was, it felt like an odd way around to me. I would have thought it, that the ratio would be the other way around because... Mm. The, the effects on people's incomes are kind of coming effectively via harm to their health, right? Yeah. And it's a bit strange that you would have kind of larger gains from the kind of thing that's further downstream where because you're healthier, you can earn more money and that benefits you so much rather than just the direct harm yeah. to, to your body that's occurring from this poison. Yeah, that is weird. I guess it's because the health benefits that we're counting are the the DALIs that, that don't incorporate the kind of health harms of having cognitive impairment unless mm. it comes below... Uh, this like very low level, which mm. which constitutes intellectual disability. So we're not really counting those those health harms that just come from cognitive impairment generally. Yeah, seeing that, I, I guess the the effect on people's incomes maybe is easier to quantify. Uh, yeah. You maybe have a better measurement of that. So uh, whereas the effects on people's health might be quite diffuse across a very wide range of different possible health outcomes, mm-hmm. and seeing that. The effect on people's incomes was bringing eighty percent of the of the juice here, and then only twenty percent was the other health stuff. Made me think that that health bucket is probably getting underestimated quite a lot. And in fact, maybe that could be two or three, four, five times larger than than, than what you're estimating in, in reality. Yeah. But and the problem is we just kind of can't measure it very well uh, currently with, with with research that we have. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Okay, so you got this crazy outcome of potentially you know giving someone a year of healthy life for fourteen dollars. It's insane. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we could accomplish that in the UK, uh, people's heads would explode. When that happened, did you think that this was likely to be a fluke, or did you think that this was probably basically something that you could more or less uh, replicate in a whole lot of other countries? Because the situation is more or less the same across you know a hundred different countries in the developing world. I think we weren't sure, but we were pretty optimistic. We weren't really expecting the regulatory authority to be so receptive and to immediately take this data so seriously and want to act on it. And we didn't know if we'd find that elsewhere, but then but then we did. That's been a really kind of common finding across the countries that we're working in. Another difference is that Malawi already had like a legal mechanism on the books, whereas not all countries do. So that means it will take longer in some other countries because you have to go through the process of getting the regulation in place before you can enforce. So, I see. Yeah. Okay, so so in some countries it's already illegal, and you just have to go in and tell the regulator, and then fingers crossed they'll have some initiative, and they'll they'll start testing, and they'll contact these companies and tell them to to lay off. Yeah. Whereas in other ones, you might have to have a two stage process where you point this out, and then you have to, I, I guess, advocate to the government that this is a really important issue that they've been underestimating, and they've got it, they've, they've got it, they've got to get laws on the books so that they can crack down on on leaded paint, and yeah. then you can go through this second stage of then approaching the regulator or, or doing these tests in order to make sure that there's follow through. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we've been talking almost exclusively about uh, lead paint so far. Why do you focus on lead paint as opposed to other sources of lead? And what are the other main sources of lead? So there are many different sources of lead exposure in low-middle-income countries. Paint, we've talked about. Others include like aluminum cookware, um, lead-glazed ceramics, cosmetics, uh, lead-adulterated spices, water systems, things like lead acid battery recycling, mining, recycling, there are probably others too that we're not we don't even really know about yet, and we don't really know like which exposures are which most significant in which countries or the relative contribution of of different sources in different areas. And there's there's a big lack of data, and it does look like it varies a lot geographically. But we, there, there's enough to make some educated guesses as to why we're focused on paint. It's because it seems like a widespread, important source of exposure that's also unusually tractable. Um, and also very neglected. I think the tractability is probably a really important factor and possibly more differentiating than those others. 
you know, we know that with a little bit of support, low and income country governments can get lead paint off the market, which is like a big reason why it's it's kind of so cost effective to work on. Yeah. yeah. Let's just uh, pause again on what those other sources are. Okay. Mm. So there's like lead acid batteries from cars. There's yeah. people who are doing uh, like informal recycling of those, like, exactly. I assume in pretty poor areas. And yeah. of course, if you're involved in that, that's a massive exposure of lead for you. Yeah. And I guess or it ends up in the soil. Yeah, if you live nearby. Okay. Yeah. So that's going to be concentrated in particular locations, but then very severe in those in those spots. Exactly. Then I did not know this until recently, but there's lead put in sometimes in crockery that people are eating off of, mm-hmm. and you're saying there's lead glazers. So yeah. sometimes you, you put colorful things, colorful decorations onto uh, you know bowls that people are eating out of, and that can have very high concentrations of lead in it. Yeah. So so the the paint on the the kind of paint put on. Um, bowls or whatever that could be have very high concentrations of lead, but also just the normal glaze that's used to like seal a piece of pottery, like just the normal ceramic, that often has very high levels of lead. It can be like sealed and fired at high temperatures and and done in a way that it means that the lead doesn't leach into the foods very much. But in many low and middle income countries, it's done in a way where it does leach into the food a lot. So in, in South America and Latin America, that's that's been a big problem, probably also in a number of other regions as well. But that, that people haven't even identified that it's an issue yet. Yeah, yeah. this is so uh, we mentioned earlier that you brought in this X-ray gun, uh, which costs about as much as a car that uh, you can put up against objects. And I guess it, so it's shooting X-rays at the material and then it's telling back what wavelengths are being shot back. And there's a very specific signature, I guess, of lead when it's hit by X-rays. Yeah. And so it can tell roughly the uh, density of lead in this material in, in, in parts per million it was doing. Mm. So I actually brought in some of my pots and pans from home because my, my wife is pregnant and I was I'm, we've been slightly worried that uh, having, having read this stuff uh, yeah. this year that there's uh, lead in in bowls and so on that yeah. maybe we could be ingesting lead accidentally that way. Fortunately, as it turned out, uh, most of the cups and bowls in, in our house, it seems, uh, are pretty safe. There, there, were, there wasn't zero lead, but it was uh, you know really, really very low, enough that we shouldn't really stress about it. Yeah. But you, you tested some bowls in the yeah. UK and you, and yeah. you found that I it's tested, actually like alarming levels even in London? Yeah, I tested my um, my parents' plates at home and it was above the limit that the machine will test. So over 10% lead in the glaze on our just like everyday dinner plates, which <laughs> which is actually legal in the UK um, <laughs> because the regulation is about leachability. So they'll test how much lead leaches into a solution when you're like using the the item but i'm suspicious because like <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah i would not well, you know these, eat off of a hunk of lead if, yeah, if someone said it was pretty well leaching, yeah i mean also these plates are 30 years old they're a bit they've got scrapes on them so surely so these are antique oh these are well they're not old, yeah. antique my parents are just okay. <laughs> <laughs> i see <laughs> they just don't replace their bowls very often okay yeah um so but but even newer things so we were testing some newer items from like I, I don't know if I should name okay. the the well the well known brands, <laughs> see, yeah. Um, but yeah, testing new items and uh, well, it's, it's a very well known supermarket chain in the yeah, UK. Yeah, really high you levels of lead. You shop at it if you live in the UK. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of scary. And then, and, and, and then, what was it at that at that place? It was uh, also like, like ten thousand above ten thousand. So it was more than yeah, and that uh, was the parts more that than one percent lead on, yeah. the, on the outside. Yeah, it was the parts that were um, like colored and patterned so i think it was I like see. the paint but then te- we also tested a like a teapot from another well-known uk brand and that was very very high lead yeah um and that uh, was the glaze i think as opposed to the paint so yeah so it's pretty crazy we, we were saying before we started recording that someone really needs to buy one of these x-ray guns yeah. and make an instagram account and a yeah. twitter account and just go across shops 
pointing out how many objects that people use in their yeah. everyday life have led. You know, put a photo of it, put a photo of the gun, and then say, yeah. you know, uh, well, I won't say the name of any particular supermarket. <laughs> I won't single them out. But, you know, X supermarket, you're selling pots that have 10% lead, yeah. like 1% lead, but people to eat off of. This is not reasonable. Exactly. I think it could make a massive difference. I think it would be a hit. I mean, mm. people are obsessed with maybe even to an excessive degree in some cases about toxins in their yeah. environment. This is like among the worst toxins that we know of. And yeah. we're putting it in everyday objects, you know, hoping that people are never going to eat off of a cracked plate or, you know, continue eating off of this stuff after it's passed its usual kind yeah. of use by date. Yeah, I would follow that account for sure. Yeah. I think it'd go, it'd go big. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there's also issues with tin cans, right? Sometimes where they're, they're soldered shut using something that has a little bit of lead in it. Yeah. So it used to be the case that they would be like just soldered shut with, with lead. But now I think it's more that aluminium can often be contaminated with lead. Mm. Um, so aluminium or aluminum, it is melted at like a lower temperature than other metals. And in the recycling chain, lead just gets in there. So I think even in high-income countries, you can find a bit of lead and aluminium. But in a lot of low- and middle-income countries, the like pots and pans that people cook from every day can be made from aluminium and kind of extremely high levels of lead. So could, my... I mean, could, could in, in, you know, the pots that we have at home here, mm. could we plausibly have some meaningful lead in them? Probably if they're, if they're older or if they are from another country. Um, okay. I know that on Amazon, you can buy aluminium like pressure cookers that are made in other countries that can have extremely high levels of lead. We tested my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law is from Pakistan. We tested her aluminum cookware, which she had bought from Pakistan, and that was um, 8,000 parts per million lead. And in with al- aluminum cookware, I think there is evidence that it does leach into food. It's not like with some of sometimes the glaze can in theory not but this is really a big a big problem isn't most cookware stainless steel i would have thought that most of my pots and pans were stainless steel they might be yeah okay yeah yeah but i think aluminium is is very popular material in a lot of places okay so i suppose one option would be to use stainless steel rather than aluminium if you were worried about this and yeah aluminium and brass are the higher risk ones okay Yeah. yeah i find it really surprising that we're not more on top of this uh, personally, uh, yeah. but I guess as you're saying, it's just it's the same reason that it's ignored everywhere. That it's this yeah. invisible thing that yeah. you, people don't even know later in life if they've been exposed to an unreasonable amount of lead. And then if they do find that out, they can't identify that it's a pot. They yeah. used, uh, so the the amount of damage that can be done is really quite large before yeah. it ever gets picked up and people get angry about it. Exactly. Okay, so we got we had lead added as batteries. We had these things that you're eating off of or cooking mm. in. What, what what were the other uh, other so main cosmetics? Sources? Is cosmetics. One of them. Okay, yeah, but this is these are fairly unusual cosmetics that are used in particular places, right? Um, they're probably not used very widely in the UK, but these are things like black eyeliners, like um, sometimes called coal or kajol or surma, um, and they have different names in Africa, and they are quite popular in certain cultures, and sometimes they are made with lead sulfide so they're basically they're basically just a bit they're of basically lead. lead yeah this has been found in south asia and um, the middle east parts of africa as well and they can be put on on children they're often used on on children so that could be quite an important source of exposure yeah extraordinary okay and what what, what are the others so spices spices okay. lead adulterated yeah. spices yeah yeah uh, turmeric salespeople and turmeric producers have found themselves putting a lead chemical in with their turmeric because it makes it, it gives it a brighter yellow color, which allows yeah. it to fetch a higher price. But exactly. then, of course, everyone is eating lead in their spices. Yeah. Um, exactly. So you think lead in paint is bad, but the same it's the same pigment that is going in the paint is literally going in the food. So yeah, yeah it's bonkers. If people are putting lead on their face in makeup, mm-hmm. like couldn't they end up with acute lead poisoning from that? I mean, yeah. I guess you don't eat makeup, but, you know, it wouldn't yeah, be that shocking. Yeah, I mean, a child is going to get it on their hands, yeah. right, and put it in Look their it. mouth. So I think you probably could end up with acute lead poisoning. 
I guess an, another source is lead from lead or gasoline in the past that has ended up in soil, right, near mm-hmm. roads. And so if people end, if children end up playing in soil, they can end up exposed to quite a bit of lead that way. And that's quite hard to fix because the concentration is not that high and it's not easy to remediate science like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So those are, those are the main sources. Well, maybe. I mean, we don't okay. really we, we don't really know what the main sources are or what the relative contribution is, and there could be others that we that we're not even aware of as being important. So yeah. yeah okay. So those are some sources. <laughs> yeah. um, how is it that we have not? I guess in order to attribute the lead that you find in people's bodies, or uh, how do you figure out where it's come from? Is is the problem that it's not at all straightforward to do that? Yeah, it's it's not straightforward to do that. So there are some studies where you measure lead in people's blood and then you measure uh, sources of lead in the environment and you try and kind of draw correlations between high blood lead levels and which sources are present. But it's not that easy to do. Um, and it's not that easy to pick out the kind of widespread lower level exposures. It's easier to pick out like the, the hotspot exposures. So obviously right. if you're living next to a lead acid that battery recycling site, um, that's pretty easy to draw out that association. Um, but if everyone's using lead contaminated aluminum cookware and everyone's living in a lead painted home, it can be quite hard to to, to pick, pick it out because there's not enough variation and it doesn't stand out. There's not a strong signature. Yeah. yeah. Well, or well, one thing we didn't uh, come back to was the lead in water because mm. of leaded piping. Yeah. How, how big a problem is that? Yeah. So it's still there's still a lot of lead piping in in high income countries. It's probably less of a contributor than old lead paint, but still not good. In low middle income countries, there has been found to be high levels of of lead in water in some places. I think PVC piping is like more predominant than or different materials of piping is more predominant than than lead piping but there are kind of there can be other parts of the water system that can use lead so that that could be a well problem i don't think it's very well characterized in low middle income countries yeah as i understand it, in the uk it's not at all uncommon to have lead piping but yeah. typically i think the the water companies have run chemicals through the water and it produces this kind of coating on the inside of the pipe that's yeah. meant to ensure that the water never touches the leaded metal and i guess the problem would arise if that didn't work completely or that broke down yeah, um, or if you're for some moving the pipes and something like that yeah okay yeah so the typical situation is not that much lead uh, but, it, but you could have a hot spot if something goes wrong yeah and not that much lead is still bad there's that's that's the scary thing is like, that? Uh, like not that much even lead, not yeah. that much lead okay. is still bad there's because like, you're drinking it in yeah, great quantities yeah, yeah and there's like there's no level of lead exposure that has been shown to be to be safe and it, like we were talking about before you know even one microgram per deciliter um, there's evidence that there's harms associated with that. And yeah. there's that kind of really steep relationship at the lower end of blood blood levels um, mm. between blood levels and harms. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've chosen to work on paint. I think, if I recall correctly, you, you've estimated, you've had to guesstimate this a bit, but you think that maybe 20% of the lead in people's blood in the countries that you're targeting is from paint as opposed to other sources. But that leaves the, this other 80% roughly that's coming from, from other things. Mm. If you were to change to focusing on a different source of lead, what would be the pros and cons of working on some of the more, most plausible alternatives? Yeah. Just back to the, the 20% number, is that, that's really very uncertain. And in our new model, we we calculate it a bit differently. And we come up, we come with, to something similar in that range, but kind of varying between countries, between, I guess, like 7% and closer to 20%, depending on the country. But yeah, it's very uncertain. So the other part of the question was, what are some of the kind of pros and cons of working on on other sources. Exactly. I imagine that yeah. you've, you've, you've considered working yeah. on something other than paint and they probably you've found some like ways that that would be better and ways that would be worse than what you're doing yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So one one that we, we thought is pretty interesting is, is lead in spices. That's because, you know, where, adult, where spice adulteration is happening is likely to cause really high 
high blood blood levels. And it looks to be really tractable to address. Like in a similar way to paint, it's being added and it's unnecessary. And with proper enforcement, you can just crack down on it. I think the argument against is that it's probably only happening in a handful of countries, maybe around five to 10 countries, and that there are other actors involved in some of these countries. So it's probably a bit less neglected. But there are also a lot of countries where it hasn't been studied. So we have actually this year been, we're carrying out a study right now into spices in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a country that has a lot of production and consumption of brightly colored spices. And there's no data on whether or not there might be any lead contamination, any lead alteration going on. So we think it's unlikely that we'll find high levels of lead, but we think it's an important data gap and and worth finding out. So that's spices, pretty interesting. And if we found it, we'd we'd work on it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe we should just briefly say the 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 story of the of the um, yeah. lead in turmeric in, in in Bangladesh. So basically, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I guess what was it six seven years ago now, uh, some researchers identified that a spike in lead poisoning in Bangladesh was due to this uh, adding of lead to mm. turmeric. They jumped on this because it was just such a severe problem. I mean, obviously. <laughs> There's no benefit. There's no meaningful benefit to adding lead it's to turmeric. It's just like, Don't you love the bright color? <laughs> yeah, it's so pretty. <laughs> um, so, and it was causing an enormous amount of health damage. And mm. I think a handful of people, basically over a period of years, um, you know, with a budget on the tens of thousands, possibly, <laughs> possibly in the low hundreds of thousands of dollars, have managed to basically fix this problem. Yeah. They, as it turned out, the people who were doing this, just sticking this chemical in in the food, I think they realized that they were doing something that they probably shouldn't be doing, but they didn't realize just how extraordinarily poisonous this was at extremely low levels. Yeah. And they were not happy to find out what they had been doing. And the government got involved uh, and has started testing this. And you yeah. know, people now go to the markets and make sure that everyone's following the rules and not adding lead to the turmeric. So this is an extraordinary success story. In, in terms of you know, years of healthy life delivered per dollar of work, uh, it's, it's going to be absolutely off the charts and yeah. hard to hard to ever match. I guess the problem is it you can't scale it because something this awful isn't happening everywhere in the world all the time. Yeah. There's some very other countries that have had this issue, like I think Georgia yeah. uh, is, is is another one where people have had to had to target this. And I guess possibly Ethiopia could turn out to be a, another case. But it's it's like an absolute jewel, but there are not that many of them available. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think another thing about it is that it's it's a pretty similar intervention to ours. So it would be like a pretty good synergy with the type of work that we're doing. Yeah. So if you couldn't find, if, if tragically you don't find lead in spices in Ethiopia, uh, what other things might be on the, on the hit list that are competitive with lead paint? So aluminum cookware is pretty interesting. It seems to be pretty widespread. In the, in the kind of limited research that's been done so far. I think I'd want to see a bit more data on the extent to which it leaches into food and under what conditions. And there's some of that research going on at the moment. A problem there is that it's unclear like how easy a regulatory intervention would be for aluminum cookware. It's not like people are adding it intentionally and can just stop doing it. It's just getting into the recycling chain. It's just being melted down with other scrap metals. So maybe there would be some kind of technological solution. Um, it's also probably a much more like diffuse practice. I see. So I think then that like a bit more kind of scoping out of the solution space that would be pretty helpful before knowing kind of what an effective intervention would be. Right. So you could identify there's a lot of aluminium cookware that has some lead in it, but it might just be everywhere has a bit. And what people are going to say, what do you want me to do? Throw out all of my aluminium cookware for none of us to produce more aluminium cookware because we can't get aluminium that has no lead in it. Mm. Uh, and so you could get a lot more stuck at that second stage. Yeah, I think it could be it could be a challenge. But 
I don't know for sure. Like we haven't explored this enough to be able to say like, oh, this isn't tractable. Um, is but there yeah. some reason that why would you use aluminum cookware over stainless steel? Is there a technical advantage? I don't know. A lot of people like cooking with it. I know a lot of people prefer it to cook in. It's, it's also like lightweight, which is nice. Right. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a price difference, but yeah, it is. But it is a popular choice. Popular choice. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what, what's, what's another one? Um, we've been thinking about cosmetics. Cosmetics are pretty interesting. I talked about how it's kind of quite quite widespread. This like lead in in the black eyeliner, and it's a case where it's like an intentionally added ingredient and we know that there are alternatives available like you can buy black eyeliner and similar types of products that are lead free and a lot of it is produced in Pakistan and we have a really good relationship with the regulatory authority there so that could be pretty interesting one to explore like all sources we don't really know how much it's contributing to the overall burden of of lead poisoning Um, but if it looks tractable it could be pretty interesting yeah yeah okay so I suppose it's possible that these other approaches could be more cost-effective than working on paint. But you're having so much success with the leaded paint that I imagine there's a pretty strong temptation to just keep going with the leaded paint until you've kind of plucked the low-hanging fruit on that. Because I guess if you're in 17 countries, you know, you're some meaningful fraction towards the way towards hitting all of the ones that you reasonably could. And then maybe you could move on to some of these other approaches. Yeah, I think the, the way we're thinking about it is like, we've got this intervention that works and we want to, it's like there's impact on the table. We want to scale up to as many countries as as we can do this cost effectively and alongside that keep exploring these other ideas these other opportunities so that we're not missing other opportunities for impact as well yeah what's the limiting factor to how quickly you can you know hit all 100 countries that you might want to target for the issue of leaded leaded paint you know is, is it access to the right people to hire is it maybe not not having enough funding to to scale as quickly as you want or, or maybe you're just going as, as as quickly as you can and it's uh, just a matter of implementing something that's that's working basically as well as it could be so far, funding has been the like main limiting factor on our ability to kind of scale up over the last few months. Initially, the limiting factor was, you know, finding out whether this intervention works and then finding out if it's replicable and improving the intervention. But now we're pretty confident that, that we can help get lead paint off the market. And it's kind of just a matter of like progressing through the process in the countries that we're working now and scaling up to more. We think there are probably around 50 more countries where it'll be like tractable enough and there'll be like large enough burdens of lead poisoning from paint to run our intervention cost effectively. Um, and if we were able to reach those 50 countries, that would cover around 90% of the population of, of children in low middle income countries. So that's that's the goal. It's the goal. Okay. Yeah. What's, what's your budget now? And you know how much money could you plausibly absorb? Uh, Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our budget at the moment is just over a million dollars a year. We have a funding gap of 2.5 million for the next three years to help us scale up towards those 50 countries. But how much we could plausibly absorb, I think we estimate it'll be around $20 million to kind of get lead paint off the market in those in those countries. Yeah. And, and how many years might that take? So it'd be over five years or something? Yeah, seven, five years. Yeah, five, yeah, seven so, years. So four million a year for, for, for a couple of years would be enough to do this. There's a lot of money. Optimistically. In glo- yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> There's a lot of money in global health and development. Why do you think it is that People aren't throwing this money at you. I think it's the, the same thing we keep coming back to, which is, is just such a kind of yeah. neglected area, really low awareness. I think also it falls between different areas. Like, is it an environmental health issue? Is it global health? Is it education? Is it, you know, economic development? Yeah, there's there's very, very little funding in, in lead exposure. I think probably only around $10 million a year f- for philanthropic funding for international lead work across across everything all, across everything across, across all low middle countries across, yeah, the across everything yeah. um which is like shocking compared to other you know 
global health problems of similar scale. There's also very few actors, like I think a small handful of actors in this space doing doing lead exposure reduction work internationally. Yeah. I think we're probably like the second biggest organization. We've got nine people. Uh, what's the one? There's Pure Earth is the mm-hmm. other one? Yeah, okay. Pure Earth, um, IPEN. So that's the International Poisons Environment Network or? Pollutants. Pollutants yeah. Environment Network. Okay. Yeah. Is that, and that's a, that's a non-profit? Yeah, it's like an, it's a network of non-profits. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. they work on various toxic chemicals. So there's really just a handful of you. Yeah. And you're all pretty small. Uh, I guess Pure Earth is a couple of million a year. Yeah, Pure Earth is bigger than us. Um, it's probably a bit more than that. All right. Well, if anyone in the audience uh, doesn't like children having lead poisoning and uh, has <laughs> has some money burning a hole in their pocket, I guess uh, your website is leadelimination.org. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's right. Leadelimination.org. Yeah. And people can just donate, right? Uh, yeah. I imagine it's tax deductible in the UK and, and yeah. the US. Yeah. And some other places. The, the other thing to mention is that we will hopefully be hiring in early 2024. So if anyone is interested in potentially working for Leap, you could like follow us on LinkedIn or social media, and then uh, you'll you'll see when we when we put out the the job descriptions. Yeah, yeah. As we'll talk about in a minute, uh, you, you came through this charitable entre- entrepreneurship uh, incubation program, which is this effort to get people to start innovative nonprofits with the goal of kind of maximizing their expected value. You know, using evidence and and analysis, uh, as, as 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 the saying goes. Many people might think that taking that you know expected value maximizing impact mindset is all very well in theory. In, in principle, of course, that uh, thinking in that way should allow you to have more impact. But maybe in practice, it doesn't do that much because you can't estimate things very accurately. You know, it's too hard to do the analysis well. Or maybe what's really challenging isn't doing that sort of initial idea stage, but rather it's just the grind of making an organization grow and making it function uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. But I think your experience suggests otherwise, that maybe the first step where you do the cost-effectiveness analysis and think, how much benefit would this have? Is this really neglected? Is there a lot of tractability here? Maybe that you do get an enormous amount of juice thinking in expected value terms and trying to find the, you know, the, the diamonds in the, you know, on, on, on the beach. Yeah, do, do you think this does suggest that the effective altruist-flavored mindset actually does offer a lot of bang for buck, maybe? Yeah, I think, I think it kind of is a point in favor of that. I think... Um... The yeah, obviously the initial identification of the like idea and the intervention benefits from from that kind of framework and thinking. But I also think in the implementation and execution, yeah, I find that like it's just constant decision making. Implementation is just like constant decision making. And I think having those sorts of frameworks that kind of focus on evidence and cost effectiveness and impact is is valuable all the way through. Like I think it would be it would be easy to kind of start with an idea that looks really good on a cost-effectiveness analysis, but then then stray right. if you're not kind of keeping in mind that kind of focus on the cost-effectiveness and ultimate impact and sort of thing. So that's really baked into your decision-making across the org is to always be, I guess, it, I mean, do you actually do expected value calculations in, in your mind and, and on paper? Yeah, yeah, we do. And okay. I think our whole team kind of think in that kind of way. I think many many people are leery of that to a point. I mean, even I feel wary of doing that sometimes because... I guess I worry that it might produce this sort of thing like with Givor that we were talking about where mm. you end up overvaluing stuff that's highly measurable. Mm. Um, or alternatively, I guess people worry that it could lead you in the other direction where something that's super speculative and unlikely, maybe you just end up veering towards that because it might work and you don't yeah, know what the likelihood yeah, yeah. is of it working. Yeah, I don't think, you, I don't think you'd want to be like too literal with it, but mm. it's more like, you know, would this multi-stakeholder meeting be valuable to fund? How much might it bring forward regulation? Okay, that looks like it will meaningfully contribute to it. Impact. Yeah. It can be like kind of tempered in reality. I think that the kind of just thinking about the the likely value of, of different decisions. 
Yeah. I think one thing I found is the cases in which thinking in terms of expected value does the most good is when you ask, what would have to be true for this to be the best use of my time? And if the numbers that you have to put on it are completely implausible for it to seem like the best option, then you shouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and on the other hand, if you can't think of any numbers that you could conceivably put on it that, that don't make you laugh, that would suggest that you shouldn't do it, then probably you really ought to. Because yeah. uh, sometimes it is just super clear and other times it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not so clear, but those are the times when it doesn't uh, matter so much what, what you end up uh, choosing. Yeah. Yeah. That's your experience as well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. I would like to now maybe put some ideas that occurred to me while prepping for this interview uh, to you. These are kind of me fishing around for whether there might be ways of getting rid of late and even more sweeping scale than, than what uh, Leaf is managing to do with its current program. You, you, can, you can shoot them down. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, yeah, late used to be using car petrol everywhere. Yeah. And that has now been basically completely eliminated. And that shift was super fast in some mm. places. So, you know, it took a decade or two for most rich countries to to eliminate uh, lead after some of the some of the first countries moved but then in 2002 lead gasoline was used everywhere in sub-saharan africa and then then the united nations environment program made it a priority to try to change that yeah. and then by 2006 it had been banned everywhere in the entire region so just within a couple of years you get this 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 complete removal of the source of the overwhelming amount of lead that people were getting exposed to mm. and, and i mean that shift has to be one of the most cost-effective things humanity has ever done in terms of improving health uh, relative to how yeah. much inconvenience it was to no longer have have leaded, uh, leaded petrol. I guess maybe it's competitive with smallpox elimination or something like that conceivably. Mm. Could we do the same thing with leaded paint here somehow that maybe what you need is a UN agency to just tell every country you are out of your mind to have leaded paint. You all need to ban it and make it a priority to put a bureaucrat on testing this. Mm. Uh, and then you could maybe get the same kind of sweeping change from, yeah, that I guess you're trying to achieve as a non-profit in a slightly unofficial way. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I really like this question. And it was something that we actually were pretty interested in trying to understand, like, how did this leaded gasoline thing happen in sub-Saharan Africa? It's called the Partnership for Clean Fuels and Vehicles. And so we had, uh, in turn, Johannes did a little kind of case study on, like, how did that happen? Um, a few things that kind of stood out for, for me. So it was like, I think it was 2002 to 2006, sub-Saharan Africa pretty much ended the use of leaded gasoline. So one thing that was going on there, which doesn't really apply in our scenario, but is interesting, is that um, catalytic converters started being used in cars. Did you read about this? I, I've heard of them. Yeah. They're, they're meant to make the smog that comes out less horrible, I don't, I right? I don't actually know what they do. But, okay. <laughs> yeah. they, they convert being used things cars, catalytically. It's, but uh... they break if you use leaded fuel. Ah. So okay. that was kind of a big reason why leaded fuel just didn't make sense anymore. And it also meant that more industry was behind it, especially like car industry was behind it as well. So that was very helpful. Another thing about leaded gasoline is that almost all of the leaded gasoline used in sub-Saharan Africa was produced in just 20 refineries. Right. And they were consolidated. It's a much more concentrated yeah, industry. And they were consolidated in just a handful of countries. So it was like a really clear focus. And also those countries that those refineries were concentrated in were also in sub-Saharan Africa. So the governments have the kind of incentive that kind of cracking down on that will also benefit the population. Mm. So that's good. And that's the case for pain as well, which I think is, is helpful. Not the consolidation, but the fact that the, the industry is occurring in the same place that the people are being harmed. And there was also really strong political will in sub-Saharan Africa for it. But interestingly, not a lot of public awareness. Um, oh. So this was a, a something occurring at the government level where people got very passionate about yeah, this. Yeah. And in fact, the Global Alliance to Eliminate Lead Paint, which is this kind of body jointly led by the WHO and UNEP um, that leaps a member of that was modeled after the partnership for clean fuels and vehicles. Um, and they have made significant progress together with a 
this NGO, IPEN, which is another partner of the Global Alliance to Eliminate Lead Paint. I think that a lack of funding for the alliance has been a big reason why progress hasn't been faster. Okay. Yeah, I think I think more funding would, would make a difference there. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it maybe was 10 times worse. So maybe that's one reason why it was easier to get people really excited about mm. leaded gasoline because it was actually just doing more health damage than leaded paint is. Yeah. So I guess we're going to yeah, start with that. And then it was very concentrated industry. So there was only 20, there was 20 places that this was being made in the entire continent. Yeah. And if you could just make uh, like hassle those particular places and hassle the regulators in those jurisdictions, then you could basically shut down the problem because people wouldn't be able to get leaded gasoline anywhere. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's a reasonable difference, whereas there's probably thousands of paint producers across yeah. Africa. Yeah, I see. It sounds like if you get sufficient funding, $20 million, not that much money in the scheme of things, you kind of could hit most of these countries. It sounds like you might be able to actually get something like this to happen over a period of five years. Maybe what's odd about this is that you're able to do this as a nonprofit that doesn't really have any official power just by bringing the money and the person power and the attention to do some testing that probably kind of should have been happening anyway. Maybe maybe I should be thinking it's remarkable that a nonprofit can do this just off its own bat without having to have the you know imprimatur of the United Nations behind it. Yeah, I mean we, we do have the kind of the Global Alliance as like a a real kind of point of of credibility and the fact that they're saying that this should be a priority as well. So that really helps, I think. Yeah, who started that alliance? So it is kind of a joint initiative of the WHO and the UN Environment Programme, and it's chaired by the US EPA, um, but it's got loads of loads of members. Okay, so there's this other more official government group. To what extent do you think that kind of group, you know, a group coming out of the World Bank or the WHO or the United Nations Environment Programme, is in a better position to push this agenda than you are as a non-profit? If, mm. if, if, they, if you had it with a similar amount of money or a similar amount of attention going into it, uh, what are the comparative advantages of each group? Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely pros and cons. So like the WHO has has really strong advocacy power and strong credibility. But as a like a small nonprofit, we have a lot more flexibility and we can be a lot more fast moving. So that can be quite helpful at times. So kind of working together is in a way the best because you can have the WHO with the advocacy power and kind of adding credibility to the thing. And then we can be going in and actually like filling whatever gaps are coming up or identifying these low-hanging fruit and adding value in that way. I guess an example I could give is uh, the Madagascar Ministry of Environment was looking for funding for a, a paint study for many years because they thought it would be really key for motivating and informing the development of lead paint regulation. And the Global Alliance to Eliminate Lead Paint, the like WHO UN Environment Programme, they didn't have a budget for that, that sort of thing for, for a paint study, um, but they were able to tell us about that and we could just go immediately and fund that. $4,000 or something like that. And that could be really catalytic in, right. in that process. Yeah. Okay. So they, they have a lot of credibility. They might be given a lot of weight by, by governments receiving their advice. But yeah. on the other hand, they're very inflexible with the budgets, very inflexible with the personnel. To, to get, for things to happen, you have to get approval from many more people. Whereas I guess at Leap, uh, you know, what Lucia says uh, goes <laughs> probably <laughs> unlike the, the UN Environment Program. Uh, yeah. So you could just jump in and do something in Madagascar because you think it's a good idea from one day to the next. Exactly. Almost. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So uh, do, do you think you're getting a lot of juice out of this kind of combination of the, of the two where they, they refer stuff to you and then you produce the information they need to act? Yeah, I think so. The Global Alliance also has this role in kind of like tracking the situation globally. So we have meetings every month, every couple months, where we kind of go through the kind of global status. And that's really helpful for us picking up like, okay, this country looks like there's, you know, there's a ripe opportunity for us to offer support. And that seems like a really great synergy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, a different angle on how to get a really big systemic change here. How much does it cost to test for lead in someone's blood you know, or in a, oh, I guess we said it was $15 or so for, for a Around sample. $13, yeah. Uh, and for, for, a, for a person's blood sample, how much? It's probably similar. Probably you could get it at around that price. Okay. Yeah. How much of a game changer would it be to have a way of easily and really cheaply measuring lead in, in blood or in objects or in paint? What if you could do it for a dollar or less? Yeah, that would be huge. Okay. That would be a game changer. So if you could measure the lead content of objects like paint or, or other sources of exposure cheaply, accurately, and also in like a really kind of low, low tech kind of simple, simple, easy way, that would be like huge for the government testing capacity problem. Like you could imagine, you know, like this lead gun that we have here, if a government regulatory authority could have one of those and it wasn't going it was going to be accurate and it wasn't going to break, they could, you know, just go around testing those things and enforce on the basis of it. So I think that would be a real game changer. There is work to try and get these portable X, XRF devices, mm. try and figure out like with what method can the result be accurate enough that it could be used for enforcement by like a low middle-income country government. So we've been we were talking just like um, over the last few weeks with with Stanford University and Mercer University, where they've been working on methods to get accurate results, so that you can use XRF for um, paint testing, and um, they're hoping to get a project funded so that that can be like an approved method by these like international standards bodies. And then if it were an approved method, then governments could actually do that, and that would be pretty big, I think. Got it. So. There are some ways of doing this that, well, there's ways that we could try to make it a bunch cheaper. Yeah. A current issue is that these things are kind of roughly accurate, but they're not nearly as precisely accurate. So governments are wary of imposing penalties on businesses or telling them they can't sell something based on the x-ray gun because it's not quite as precise as you're sending off to a lab for measurement. Yeah. And also the x-ray guns are expensive. They can cost like $20,000, $30,000, but they're less expensive than the lab-based methods. Um, and if you, you test wouldn't, enough things. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and you wouldn't need many of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're less expensive than the lab-based methods if you have to have your own testing equipment. If you can use an international lab, then that would be pretty low cost. Yeah. yeah. One thing I'm a little confused by is, you know, when you stick that uh, lead gun up against a bit of paint, sometimes it says, this is 100 times as much lead as is legally permissible on this. You mm-hmm. might say, this isn't quite as precise as yeah. setting it away to a lab, but... Yeah. It's, there's no ambiguity about whether this is leaded paint or not. It's yeah. very, very clear. So it seems like having that level of precision doesn't necessarily matter. You could basically still send them a letter saying, look, we know you have leaded paint, guys. We just like, did it with this gun. And if you don't get rid of it, we're going to test it properly in a month. Yeah, exactly. Um, or you could have you could have a study or a method that says, if it's testing above this level, exactly. then you can enforce on this basis. If it's Because below, it's implausible that the real measurement exactly. is less Exactly, and that would be really valuable. But it needs yeah. to be kind of credibly published by like an authoritative body for okay. for low middle income country governments to realistically be able to do that. Got it. Yeah. Because all of the legislation or all of the norms of how you do this testing would be based on some older technology yeah. that's like very official and has to be very precise. Yeah, okay. exactly. I see. And then and then on the blood lead testing that would also be huge. Like at the moment to get an accurate result you have to take like a venous blood sample and then you have to test it on this really complex and expensive machinery that most countries don't have and so most countries if they wanted to do blood lead testing they'd have to send the blood samples abroad there is a device that allows you to do like point of care finger prick testing um, but it has some issues with accuracy and it's had some other issues as well and it only tests down to 3.5 micrograms per deciliter so that's not really low enough okay Um, so it would it would pick up lead like serious lead levels but not the sort of levels that you might see commonly in the u.s exactly yeah so if we could have like a, a low cost 
field-friendly point-of-care finger prick blood lead testing device that was accurate down to low levels, that would be, I think, a, another game changer. And yeah. I think all of this is technically feasible. I don't think that there's any reason why this shouldn't be possible. I think it's just that there hasn't been yeah. the like drivers. Of course, the reason I'm raising this is that mm. we keep coming back to the fact that we think the underlying reason why all of this harm is being allowed to occur is that it's really not a very visible problem. Yeah. Imagine if every child at the age of three was just as a matter of course, you know, at, at the same time as they're getting their standard vaccinations, also got a lead blood test. Yeah. Uh, and then the parents were told the result and th- they were notified of, you know, how much damage this had done to their child's intellectual potential. I think that would make this a massive political issue, potentially, in as much as there was serious lead levels uh, yeah. a- anywhere and parents were being told how much damage was, 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 was being done, including in the UK. I think this would shift policy in a, in a, in a major way because uh, there would actually be pressure on politicians to act on it, pressure on bureaucrats to do yeah. something. At the moment, that might be financially feasible for the UK, although uh, maybe they wouldn't want to allocate the budget for it, but it's not really feasible for for much much poorer countries. Yeah, I think it would be huge for awareness and the kind of advocacy power of knowing that this is a problem and for helping governments prioritize it. Like one potential way in which this could be like feasible in low-middle-income countries is adding it to like existing health surveys. So like USAID leads the demographic health survey, which are these like big surveys in a bunch of countries that do these nationally representative studies and they do finger prick testing for anemia. So in theory, they could add blood lead testing as well and that would add really valuable data. Right. Um, UNICEF do a similar sort of thing and are looking into doing this. I think a, a barrier has been that this testing method, but there might be ways around it, but really better technologies would, would be huge. Yeah. I mean, another kind of thing to think about is like, if you then know that there's loads of lead poisoning in the country, but you don't know what the sources are and the governments can't really do anything about it, that would be pretty difficult. So in some ways, the like understanding the sources is is more important because it more directly leads to the intervention. Hmm. But I think that the understanding the prevalence of the problem is also just like really important and really catalytic for for driving awareness and attention to solving it. So I think both of them. Yeah, I was thinking if we had way more people tested for lead and it was done maybe more regularly, then you'd be able to identify yeah. or people would get a more intuitive sense perhaps or I don't know, there'd be more data to go on at least for yeah. what things correlate with people yeah. having like weirdly higher lead levels than their neighbours do. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So identifying like which are the most exposed populations and then maybe why and then also tracking progress and knowing if interventions yeah. are working. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so at the moment, blood tests are really quite expensive and quite inconvenient. And, and I guess that's because to the entire lead blood testing industry, which is, I imagine, not very big. This is quite a boutique test. This is not something that is done routinely on tons of people. No one's been thinking, how do we get to a scale where globally we can do a billion or 10 billion blood level, uh, lead level tests uh, every every year because we want to eliminate this and we want to find every every uh, trace of, of lead. But conceivably, we could come up with a different mechanism for, for, for testing that would be way cheaper and could be scaled uh, enormously. But there's kind of a chicken and egg problem here that no one's really thinking about this because that doesn't exist. Uh, yeah. And so who's going to fund the research to make it because it's not on anyone's mind? This this be this is a kind of a classic case where you might, uh, advanced market commitments could be useful where if a government commits to buy a particular number of a given test that meets certain specifications at a given price, should it be invented in the next 10 years, mm. then that can give uh, industry a reason to try to invent that thing because they can yeah. say, well, then I'll be able to sell 100 million units for $10 each. It's kind of a classic thing that can stimulate uh, R&D among industry. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've had a few conversations with people who kind of design these sorts of challenges or advanced market commitments about both the, the blood lead and, and the like environmental testing thing. It seems like it's really a good fit for it, but probably not something Leap should be focusing on. But yeah. if anyone else wants to, <laughs> that yeah. would be great. Yeah. Okay. 
here's a completely different angle. Um, I suppose this is not actually a more systematic intervention. This is almost the opposite of that. Mm. Uh, I think doctors sometimes do what are called very brief opportunistic interventions where they just ask someone when they happen to be in uh, with another health issue, they happen to be in the GP office, are they interested in quitting smoking? And, and you know, and then if they say yes, then they then, then they help them out and instruct them on how to do that. Now, this doesn't prompt that many people to quit, uh, as you might imagine. It's very light touch intervention, but it can be really cost effective in terms of quits per hour of a physician time because it takes almost no effort per person to do this. So it's recommended that that physicians give this a go basically every time they get the chance. Now, maybe the same principle could work here. Could you just call up every paint factory basically in sub-Saharan Africa and say, do you know whether you use lead? Do you realize that this is extremely bad for children's health? Have you considered quitting lead? Have you considered <laughs> putting something else in your paint? And then maybe 1% of them or 10% of them might just take, might, that might be all that's needed in order to prompt them to, to take action. What, what, do, what do you reckon? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I don't yeah. think that's a crazy idea. The I other think, thing you yeah. could do is like raw material suppliers, so like supplies of non-nut alternatives, they provide free samples. So you could also say, and would you like to receive a free sample? Mm. Um, and then just send it to them. Yeah, I think you, usually it's, it is harder to engage with manufacturers when you don't, when you haven't done a paint study and you don't have the results. And usually they won't act until kind of regulation is is on the horizon. But that's not always the case. And I think you'd, you'd get some hits. So o- over the past few months, we have started trying to engage manufacturers a lot earlier and it does seem promising. So, mm. but yeah. I think, you know, if anyone's got some, Three hours and just wants to start calling, yeah. <laughs> calling up Cold calling, yeah. It's probably Our paint technicians are standing by yeah. to reformulate <laughs> your paint. Um, to be honest, I actually think this might be, I don't know, this is actually a good idea because it seems like within a, with a reasonable amount of money, you're on track to target, you know, all of the paint factories affect in, in, in large countries, at least in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, for mm-hmm. example, by, by doing these paint studies and, and uh, getting the government to take action. So maybe this would be, you know, I guess if you had one person who had only $10,000, uh, maybe this would be the best that they could do. But given that you have more people and more expertise and you are trying to scale, uh, this mm. probably seems less cost effective to me. Yeah, maybe maybe for us. But if someone's if someone's got free time, yeah, then... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be such an idiosyncratic hobby. <laughs> yeah, imagine explaining that to your friends. Yeah, imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it would be like calling up a paint. Uh, how do you even get the details of a paint factory in Nigeria? I don't. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I go ask ask through my networks. <laughs> Okay, so that's been some uh, alternative high-level approaches to tackling lead. Earlier, though, we were talking about your experience in Malawi a couple of years ago. Uh, what's happened since then? Uh, what, what kind of what sort of countries have you expanded to, um, what, and what sort of experiences have you been having there? Yeah, so since then, we have expanded to seventeen countries. Um, so most of them are in Africa: Zimbabwe, Madagascar, Sierra Leone, Niger, a number of others, and then a few outside of Africa as well: Pakistan, Bolivia, Uzbekistan. And basically, we we prioritize countries based on what expected burden of lead poisoning from paint. Obviously, it's pretty difficult to estimate. Um, also on neglectedness. So, are there any other actors doing anything there? And also on how on tractability. You know, the the classic, basically, INT kind of. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what, what what goes into the calculation trying to figure out the the, the burden of leaded paint? So a big part is population size. So if it's, oh, okay. if it's a big country, it's more likely that there's more lead poisoning from paint. Anything we know about the the size of the paint market, use of paint in the country, anything we know about whether there's likely to be a lot of lead paint on the market. So, do some countries use more paint than others? Are some countries, you know, big on paint and others are not? Yeah. 
in some countries, uh, like a lot of the population live in like rural areas where there's just not much painting going on. Huh, okay, um, yeah. Usually less economically developed countries. I see. But there, in those countries, there might be very rapid paint market growth. So they might right. actually be quite important. Yeah. So I guess you want to uh, ideally get a country, you know, right before an explosion of urbanization or, or construction. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, so where are you at in the, in, in, the, in the different countries? I mean, if you've gone from, you, you did one country three years ago, mm. now you're operating in 17? Yeah. It's, it's, a big, it's a big increase. Uh, have, you, have you been hiring kind of hand of a fist? Um, I mean, our team is nine, so it's a small okay. team. Right. Um, <laughs> I think that it's, it kind of highlights the fact that it's um, a relatively light-touch intervention. It's really the, the civil servants in, in government that are doing most of the work, and we're, we're there to support, we're there to help them overcome whatever barriers come up. So where are we at in the various countries? So in all of them, we've now established like good collaborative relationships with our with a relevant government authority. In 11 of them, we've completed paint studies. And in eight of them, we have commitments from the relevant government authority to either introduce regulation or to start implementing regulation if it already exists. And in four of the countries, we already have reports that paint manufacturers representing over half of the market share have started switching to lead-free. Yeah. Has the has the responsiveness of the government been at the same level as in Malawi? Has, has anywhere dragged their feet? Not really. I think when we first started, we were expecting like a big part of our role to be like advocacy, to be convincing governments that this is an important issue. Um, but that hasn't really been the case. It's more there's sometimes a lack of awareness to begin with, and then we can you know communicate about the problem and and do the paint study to to bring that awareness. But the barriers are like then then they're convinced, you know, they're on board. Obviously, no one wants lead paint in their country. So the barriers are more about the relevant part of government having limited capacity, limited time. Um, yeah, I would have thought that that would yeah. be an issue that you'd contact someone and say, sorry, I'm busy and my hands are full. I just, uh, you know, I agree with you, but I can't, but I can't act on this. Does anyone say I don't have a budget to deal with it? Just I don't have budget to do the testing or, I, you know, I don't feel like I have the authority to act? Yeah. So the, the budget, the budget thing comes up a lot. And that's where we can help. So so we'll offer support with funding the paint study. And actually, we often do the study in collaboration with the government partner. And then we offer support with funding for like multi-stakeholder meetings. That's often a big, a big step to getting progress on an issue is the kind of lead government authority will need to get other parts of government involved and they'll need to engage industry and bring them along. So they need to have all these, all these meetings. Um, and sometimes it's to, you know, agree on draft laws and that sort of thing. And so we can help provide funding for the meetings. And then we can also help with the testing capacity to some extent. So we can help with accessing international testing or improving their like internal capacity. And then we can also do a lot of the industry outreach side of it as well. So if we can offer all of that, then um, the budgetary constraints are usually not, not a problem. I see. Is it an issue that many of these countries that they presumably don't have great testing for, for lead, they don't, maybe don't have the best scientific facilities uh, to, to, to handle this? Yeah, I think probably most low-middle-income countries don't have existing ability to test for lead in things. The like approved method is using like a lab-based technique. The machine costs like thirty to fifty thousand dollars, and then there's also consumables. Um, there's also training that's needed, so that can be something that limits their ability to you know enforce the regulation. But, but you, you were saying I think you, you were you were testing samples for was it fourteen dollars or yeah. fifteen dollars or something yeah. overseas. Why why don't they just mail them out to a lab overseas? It costs it sounds like it costs peanuts. Yeah, so that that's a good a good option. And it's something that we help get set up and we kind of 
provide training on how to prepare the samples so that they can be sent abroad. And we'll even cover the costs of the international analysis for a period of time um, while they're getting set up. It's a, a very kind of cost-effective option, but I think a lot of regulatory authorities would ideally like to have their own their own capacity. Um, okay. Yeah. Just as a kind of matter of principle that they don't like stuff that comes from outside, they, they feel a bit embarrassed maybe that they're having to ship this to another country? I think it's been mentioned before that they don't really, sometimes they don't really like the idea of sending money abroad. You know, oh, why, okay. why can't we do this in our own country or locally? I think also if you, you know, if you're a regulatory authority whose job is to, to you know, run a lab and, and test for things, it's quite nice to just be able to do that and not mm. have to rely on, on external I see. Yeah. yeah, it could be more convenient to just be able to send it to the to the basement of the people in the basement rather than mail it overseas yeah, from a logistical yeah. point of view. Yeah, and it, mailing paint can be a bit tricky sometimes. You can't actually ship wet paint because uh. it's uh, flammable, um, so you have to prepare dry samples. But then sometimes mailing companies think that you can't ship dry samples, so you know it's a little bit inconvenient, but it's pretty easy. Yeah, overall, I guess maybe one reason that leaded paint is still an issue um, mm. is that it's usually produced locally, right? It's this kind of commodity business where it's extre- an extremely heavy item that's sold at relatively low cost and it's also relatively low tech. So most countries are producing their own paint or even most cities kind of have their own uh, paint supplier. And the fact that it's kind of at that medium scale means that it hasn't been possible to just identify a handful of places in the world where paint is being produced and tell them to stop. You have to go kind of city by city, country by country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the vast majority of the countries that we work in, the vast majority of the market is locally produced paint. Yeah. Yeah. The, how big a deal is it that you offer this was it paint technician or paint, mm. paint formula specialist? Uh, I have to say that is one of my favorite examples of uh, yeah. a super high impact career that I don't think uh, anyone would ever have guessed that you should yeah. go into paint formulation. And then this is going to allow you to save the lives of thousands, tens of thousands of children. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's how it's turned out. What, what, what's the guy's name again? He's called Phil. Okay. Yeah. Phil Green. Yeah. He's amazing. How important is that to the to the paint companies? How, how is it often an impediment to them that they just don't know how to make you know yellow paint or red paint uh, with, without his help? Yeah, so it depends on the paint company. Um, some have like internal chemists that are like really experienced with, with formulation, but others don't. And it's not actually a simple thing. It's not like you just. Re- it's not like a one for one replacement. It's more like baking a cake where if you substitute an ingredient, you kind of have to adjust other things to make sure it has all the right properties. So having someone who has a lot of experience with both different types of formulations, but also the local context and what suppliers are available and what raw materials you can actually get where and how that could work and how reliable all the different raw materials suppliers are is just absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, yeah, it really, very high impact career. I guess in as much as, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in as much as the companies are reluctant to, to push forward when they, when, after they speak to Phil, they yeah. can kind of be persuaded that maybe this isn't going to be as much of a pain in the ass as they were expecting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A good general principle in life is to look for ways in which you might be able to get kind of 80, the, 80% of the benefit from something for 20% of, of the effort. And, and I noticed in the distribution of lead in paint in the, in the samples that you were testing, it seemed like even among paints that had you know, more lead than you'd like, more than this 90 parts per million level, some of them had 100 times as much lead as, as others. There were some that were just chock-a-block full of lead and others that had like relatively minor amounts. Is it possible to get most of the juice just by focusing on the specific paints that have the absolute most amount of uh, the greatest concentration of lead in them? Yeah, um, possibly. So, yeah, some of them have like, you know, 7% lead or, or something like that. Really, really high levels. We prioritize in part on like market share. So we might like focus first on the manufacturers that are, you know, selling most of the paint on the market. But yeah, definitely 
the, the higher the, the lead concentration, probably the worse it is. Although another like, key factor in the relationship between lead paint and exposure is, is also the quality of the paint. So whether the paint is like flaking or deteriorating. So I don't really know what the relative, what, what like the difference is between like different levels of lead in paint versus exposure when you take into account all the other complex factors. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like this has all been suspiciously smooth. Uh, you're going to go in, you find that there's uh, lead in the paint, you call up the government, the government mostly follows up, you hassle them a little bit, you, I don't know, pay, pay for them to have some meetings, uh, pay for them to, to to run some more tests. What part of the whole process here takes the most person time or the most money? Is, is there any any stage that is, is kind of a hassle for you? Yeah, I think the, the bit that takes the most time is the part between getting getting the government on board, establishing that relationship, doing the paint study, identifying that there's a lot of lead in paint, but then actually getting getting regulation in place. And that's just because it's like a complex process. It varies by country. It involves a lot of different steps. Uh, complicating factors can come up. And also the civil servants that we're working with have are juggling a lot of plates. And so that can just, that can take a, a long period of time. And our approach is just to try and be in like really close contact lots of calls, emails, WhatsApp messages, visits to just make sure that we are as responsive as possible to whatever part of that process that we can help with. And that varies a lot by country. But that 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 kind of period takes up a lot of a lot of time, basically. I did an interview with uh, Karen Levy two years ago. We we're talking about all sorts of things that she's learned as a as a consultant yeah. working in, 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 in development for many years. Yeah. Uh, have you have you worked with Karen? Yeah, yeah, we work with Karen. She's really great. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. One thing that was a recurring theme in the conversation with, with her was just how often governments in extremely poor countries might find themselves completely unable to do a project that seems extremely high value mm. for the lack of a tiny amount of money, for yeah. lack of tens of thousands of dollars. So they do not have the staff capacity to just hire one person to coordinate this extremely obviously valuable health program. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like this something like this may be going on here, where mm. if there's just no person, if there's nothing in the budget of yeah. a bureaucracy for someone to be focused on paint, then that can that can mean that no one is proactively thinking about this uh, until, you, until you come in and hassle them. Yeah, I wouldn't frame it as hassling them. I think it's more that we try and add that capacity. I see. Yeah. yeah. So we just try and make it as easy as possible for them to do what they want to be doing. It's not that we have to kind of hassle them to do it, like they want to do it. It's that we can help them with that capacity, with that technical input, with taking on some of the things that maybe take a bit more time um, or that require a bit more funding where the budget would be really difficult to get and that sort of thing. Yeah. And if I recall, an issue is that budgets in these bureaucracies tend to be quite inflexible. There's not someone who can just reallocate things at a whim because they, you know, feel like this week that they've heard about lead in paint and they're like, oh, this is a great idea. And so you can kind of have this issue, you know, the kingdom was lost for want of a nail where the, mm. the, the entire process of enforcing, you know, a safety on paint can be lost because there just wasn't something in this particular line item because the person who was managing it years ago when the, <laughs> when the budget crystallized wasn't aware that there should be someone doing that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and why would they be aware? Like, it, lead hasn't been on anyone's radar. It's not on the radar of, of like any of the global health agendas, um, development agendas. So yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Is corruption ever a factor here? Yeah, you know, has there ever kind of maybe testing has been going on, but someone's been getting paid off to, uh, to, 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 to ignore the issue or not report that there's lead in paint? Not that we've come across. Yeah, not that we've come across. The main thing that's going on is just this kind of lack of resources and then sometimes the lack of awareness as well. The other thing is that there isn't really like a big lead paint lobby. Um, <laughs> I guess that's good to know. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing because I don't know, but there are so many industries where there is a lobby and they yeah, run the bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like there isn't 
like a huge amount of industry resistance. And in fact, industry is sometimes supportive of regulation because they, you know, they might want to switch to lead free, but they don't want to be undercut by people that aren't. And so they'll they'll be keen on regulation for the sake of the level playing field. I see. Um, and so, so, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point that there might be no reason why industry wants to resist this because it's not increasing cost enough that there's going to be any material change in the amount of paint that people use in aggregate across the country. The paint industry is going to remain yeah. the same size. And as an individual company, okay, so now everyone's paint gets 1%, 2% more expensive because they've all had to substitute away from lead. Mm. But so what? Uh, the, the costs have yeah. gone up by, by 2%. Your costs have gone up by 2%. Your revenue will go up by 2%. Now, now you don't have to feel like you're poisoning children with with lead in your paint. So yeah. there might be actually, as, as long as it is enforced uniformly across the entire yeah. industry, so there's no change competitively, then it's no skin off their nose at all. Is that kind of the situation? Yeah. And so there's this there's this relationship between regulation industry where industry might be pro-regulation if it's going to be enforced across the board because then you know creates this level playing field and then also the like government authority is more keen on regulation if industry is on board because they don't want to do something that's going to be like really difficult to enforce um or something that's just not going to be feasible and so there's kind of this like a di- like bi-directional thing where if it just happens everyone's happy with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it, yeah, that's quite different than climate change worries about fossil fuels because the whole goal is to use less fossil fuels. Mm. You know, I guess if you're an energy company that was completely indifferent between supplying oil versus wind energy, yeah. then that might be an analogous situation. But that's, that, that's, of course, not how it is. And likewise, with smoking, the idea is not you're going to switch to a different cigarette. Uh, it's that you're going to stop smoking and so their, their product doesn't get consumed. Yeah. But so long as people are going to continue consuming the same thing in roughly the same quantity, then regulation much be, uh, is much more straightforward to, to get up. Yeah, exactly. Have you found any messages in you know your emails or your meetings that are particularly motivating to policymakers or even to paint suppliers in mm. in in these countries? Yeah, so with policymakers, I think the local data is really, really important. So like the paint study data or the fact that we are offering to do a paint study with them, I think that's really appealing that okay, they can generate this data that's really important for understanding the situation relevant to their kind of role in in government. Other messaging that's, I think, quite important is about the feasibility. As I mentioned, practically, they do really care about this being feasible for industry because, yeah, I guess it's like, if it's just going to be like near impossible to enforce, then then what's the point? And also, I don't think they want to be causing like huge economic harm or something like that. So so the feasibility is important messaging. I think another one is, is the international precedent. So the fact that, you know, lead paint regulation is other countries are doing it it's it's the future basically Um, (laughs) and people don't want to be behind the curve yeah and i don't think also people don't necessarily want to do something that's really unusual Uh, um yeah so i think that that that's quite helpful and then the fact that like the who and the un environment program are behind this and there's a global alliance to eliminate lead paint um and there's the un model law which is like a model law for lead paint regulation i think all of that brings a lot of credibility to the issue yeah but it, but overall like it's less about uh, like the majority of our work is less about the persuasion or the advocacy it's a lot more about the kind of technical assistance it's like it's like they're on board how can we ha- how can we help them um so it's about the technical assistance the providing funding where it's needed and that sort of thing yeah i guess you just have a very well the general observation is that you're having a very easy time mm. and, I, and i guess there, there's probably a whole bunch of different reasons one is everyone kind of knows that leaded paint is bad it's been banned in lots of countries it's cheap to do yeah. uh there's no one arguing against it really all of the authorities internationally agree that this would be a good thing to get rid of 
the health data is fairly clear. Uh, it's easy to measure, at least for you, uh, to, to, to measure the lead in paint. So I guess there was just a, t- an in- a crazy amount of low-hanging fruit here to, to begin with. Uh, you've just found like an extremely easy hill to slide down, and now you just have to implement it. Is, is, is that kind of the basic situation? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So all of that, all of the hard work is done by finding the initial opportunity, and then, uh, well, I suppose there's, there's, there's hard work that, that, that to, with, with, with follow through. But yeah. um, that that's kind of the key insight, maybe, is the original thing. Yeah, I think so. So uh, with the other countries, are you kind of getting consistent or like roughly consistent cost effectiveness results? That you were thinking fourteen dollars per year of healthy life in Malawi, and maybe it's going to be kind of roughly similar in, in all of these other countries that you're expanding to. Um, I don't want to speak too soon because I haven't finished with the new model and I haven't like, gotten feedback in, on it and that sort of thing. But it varies a bit by country. So like some of the really big countries like Pakistan are a lot more cost effective because huge population, huge impact, but the cost doesn't scale with the with that impact. So yeah. a lot more cost effective there, but broadly pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. So, so it could actually be more effective if you hit larger countries. Well, I imagine maybe influencing policy and bureaucracies in Pakistan is more expensive than Malawi because it's a bigger country. The bureaucracy is bigger. There might be slightly higher operating costs, but nonetheless, the population is 50 yeah. times larger. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's not going to cost 50 times as much. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think about it kind of in terms of like enforcement units. So in some countries, like in Pakistan, enforcement can be done on like a provincial level. So there's like a, a few provinces. And so um, there's like more time that you need to support like the different areas of the country. Um, but it's not, it doesn't scale to the extent that the impact does. So it makes it still more cost effective. I uh, asked for audience questions uh, for this interview and we got a very cheeky one from a previous guest of the show, James Snowden, who uh, used to work at GiveWell and now works at uh, Open Philanthropy. He actually declined to fund uh, you guys, I think, back in 2020 or 2021 when he was working at, at GiveWell. Uh, but I think he's given you a grant more recently uh, working at, at Open Philanthropy. He asked, GiveWell declined to fund you when you were first starting out, but uh, more recently you've gotten this uh, open, uh, open Philanthropy grant. Why was that? And what do you think they missed? Thanks, James. <laughs> yeah, so when, when GiveWell were first looking into lead as an area, they were prioritizing their time and um, using quite broad heuristics, like how confident can they be in paint as an important source of exposure or like where can absorb a lot of funding soon. And at the time, they weren't convinced and they didn't have a CEA that they felt confident in, but they kind of planned to come back and look at it more. And then James moved to Openfill and Led kind of moved with him as an area. Um, and now Open Philanthropy is is thinking about the Led space uh, more holistically and, and is excited about Leap. I, I did ask him, like, <laughs> you know, what 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 a change. <laughs> I think he mentioned that he'd updated on the on the like health and mortality effects with the new evidence. Um, and also that he'd previously underestimated how tractable the work would be and also like how many countries we would be able to get to. I think he said he was like partly skeptical about our like relative inexperience in the field and also our track record, but that he'd now kind of endorse a less conservative attitude towards that. Yeah. Yeah. A concern that I've had about kind of the give well mindset, uh, which is, you know, looking for opportunities to do good where you can really demonstrate that uh, that they're having impact and you can kind of repeat the same thing again and again that's been shown to work in the past. A worry that I've had kind of from the beginning is just that it could push people against systematic solutions, very high level solutions where it's the, the effect isn't that predictable, but the impact when you succeed might just be really enormous. And this is kind of a common critique or a common concern uh, mm. of, of the give one mindset that they're very well aware of. And, and I think actually that they've been trying to resolve by funding more things like uh, Leap over the years. But you know, if you think about 
the UK didn't solve waterborne diseases by putting, you know, chlorine dispensers in each each house. It solved it by having government build enormous sewage systems and enormous piping systems that yeah. that brought clean water to everyone sort of simultaneously. Yeah. And there might just be no real alternative to having governments at a massive level do the things that kind of only governments can do or that only city governments can do at least. Yeah. Uh, and likewise here. We didn't solve the problem of people getting exposed to lead in the air through leaded gasoline by giving people face masks or telling them to change their behavior. We just said, no, we're getting rid of it. It's gone. We're we're banning it. And I guess you're doing something that's a bit of a hybrid model where you've got this replicable model where you can kind of demonstrate that this worked in Malawi. It's probably going to work in these future countries the same way. But you're leveraging the power of the state to just kind of fix problems somewhat by force, saying, look, we're not just not doing leaded paint anymore. And if you do this, we're going to send you to prison. Ultimately, that's that's where this will end. So uh, so no more no more leaded paint, please. But I do worry that the, fa- the fact that Givewell didn't fund this, I think maybe does show a weakness in the research methodology, or it shows that it's not going to be able to identify or at least the, the, the mindset most strictly applied is not always going to be ident- able to identify, you know, really amazing high expected value in interventions because just things that are extremely high expected value will often have too much uncertainty, too much that's unmeasurable about what's, what they're going to do. Do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, I think that sounds right. I think it's just like much harder to identify interventions like that, like um, health policy, regulatory interventions. It's much harder to identify with that level of certainty the expected impact yeah. um, and maybe give well is like not best place to be to be doing that with like kind of their methodology um or maybe it's something that they could kind of like expand their their scope into but there's been like very little of that type of thing that they've like looked into or recommended um, and especially now that james has left i think that was kind of something that james is very mm. interested in yeah yeah, so I, I might get some of this wrong, but I think so. So Givewell has paid attention to this critique and has been open to, to mm. funding more of these things. We talked about that with uh, Ellie uh, Ellie Hassenfelder earlier earlier in the year. And I think so. James Snowden has gone to Open Philanthropy, which has a bit more of this high risk, high return. I think they call it hits based giving mindset, yeah. where they're going to make a hundred grants, thinking that one of them is going to hit it out of the park uh, and pay for the pay for the entire portfolio. And he's maybe taking more of that approach on the global health and well being side at, at Open Philanthropy. So this is maybe exactly in his wheelhouse now. I guess uh, if, if there's any uh, entrepreneurs out there who are thinking of starting charities to focus on issues in the developing world, it would not surprise me if the highest impact opportunities are exactly the kind of thing that you're doing. It's improving policy in neglected areas where you can just have an enormous impact by getting the policy settings right, by getting government to take responsibility for things that government ought to be taking responsibility for. Uh, you're you're uh, nodding your head. Yeah. <laughs> Same intuition. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. All right, let's talk a bit about the Charity Entrepreneurship Program, which is how we've got off the ground in the first place back in 2020. Yeah, what's the nature of that program? Yeah, so the Charity Entrepreneurship Program, their aim is to help people start high-impact nonprofits. And what they do is they research potential intervention ideas, and then they narrow those down to a shortlist, and people apply to an incubation program. And they are kind of presented with these ideas. And then during the program, you learn all about the basics of how to start a high-impact nonprofit. Everything from, you know, decision-making, how to do a cost-effectiveness analysis, how to hire, how to do M&E, kind of everything you might need to know or you might need to know that you should know. Um, And by the end of it, you're paired up with a co-founder and you've chosen your idea and you submit a proposal for your project, and then you can be granted seed funding and 
kind of it doesn't really stop there because after that kind of two month program, you carry on getting like support and mentorship from the charity entrepreneurship team, and then you're also part of this charity entrepreneurship community, which is amazing because you're in touch with loads of people who've done things before. And so when you ever you get stuck or have a question, you just hop on Slack and you're like, who's come across this before? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what charity entrepreneurship is. Yeah. I think you're actually the third guest who's been through the charity really? entrepreneurship program. So, okay. we had so your listeners Vasha. probably know already. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, at least the, the most loyal listeners will know, <laughs> but, uh, but, not, but not all of them. So Vasha Vanugopal uh, was yeah. on a couple of years ago, uh, and she's been working on a program in India to do SMS reminders for vaccinations. And then there's also Andres Jimenez Soria, who was on a, an episode on 80K After Hours that we cross-posted to, to this feed and he's uh, working on the Shrimp Welfare Project. can strongly recommend listening to that episode if you haven't already. Uh, it's also just another fascinating exploration of a world that I knew nothing about. Um, I guess all of you arrive at this charity entrepreneurship incubation program. At that point, you don't necessarily have a co-founder or you don't know what charity you want to start. You're not bringing the idea of doing a lead charity to, to the program. You're coming in saying, I just want to do some nonprofit entrepreneurship thing that's extremely high impact. Yeah, And then... Does does the program present you with kind of a menu of pre-existing great ideas that 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 people haven't taken up yet? Is that yeah? Yeah. So each year they like research new ideas and then they present them in reports. So kind of explaining like why they think this is likely to be um, like a kind of high impact, cost effective charity idea, and then kind of throughout the program you explore those different ideas. Um, you might do like each each day you might do like a different mini project that might be focused on one idea or the other. Um, and so you get quite familiar with like what are these interventions and what might they look like? Hmm. And then you prioritize yourself like which one you think you might want to found. Okay. Has there ever been fighting over who gets to do the, you know, no, I want to do lead. I want to <laughs> remove lead. <laughs> I guess that didn't happen in your cohort. Yeah, I don't think I think sometimes there are multiple people interested in the same idea. Um but I haven't seen I haven't seen fighting <laughs> Hasn't come over to it. Blows. All right. Yeah, I think I think most people are really sensitive to like counterfactuals, right? So I see. Yeah. Oh right. Of course. So if someone else wants to do it, then that makes them more reluctant to I think I that see. can happen, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you you came without a co-founder, right? How did you get paired up with uh, who, who's your who's your main co-founder? Jack Rafferty. Jack. Okay, yeah. How did you get yeah. paired up with Jack? So Jack and I, you know, worked together on various projects throughout the first half of the incubation program. Um, the way it starts is like each day you're paired with someone different. You do a little project with them. Um, and we just found that we worked really well together. And so we were pretty, pretty keen on working together. And then also we were both interested in the same idea. Mm. Um, so those two factors together. Yeah. yeah. You were working in the NHS before this, yeah. is that right? Um, in, in, were you doing intensive, intensive care? Uh, I was a junior doctor. I was mainly working in acute and emergency medicine. Yeah. Was it a big step for you to decide to go in and do this? It's, it's a reasonably, yeah. I guess it's, it's still within health, uh, but it's a reasonably yeah. large career shift. Yeah, it was a bit scary. I'd kind of gone into medicine initially thinking that I might want to work in like global health, public mm. health, something that could result in like more systemic change. Yeah. And I'd been involved in the effect of altruism world for a long time. So I kind of I, I was always thinking, okay, what it, what high impact thing might I want my career to end up looking like? I'd considered, you know, maybe specializing in public health or maybe working for like a big intergovernmental organization or something like that. I hadn't really considered nonprofit entrepreneurship as an option. It seemed very scary and unusual. But then my friend... Uh, Nikita Patel, who founded Fortify Health. I saw her do that and I was like, wow, this is cool. This is really cool that she's doing this. And it made it like a bit more concrete and relatable, um, like seeing her experience and what it actually looked like. Um, and it kind of opened up that idea as an option. 
And then there was a time in my kind of junior doctor career where I could take some time out of medicine and easily go back again. So I thought, okay, this is a good time for me to try something different. And I thought about what I should try, did some ATK careers advising. And then it happened to be that the the application time for the incubation program lined up with a community psychiatry placement, which meant that I didn't have crazy hours. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll do this application. Yeah. I don't think it'll necessarily be a good fit. Like I don't see myself as an entrepreneur or anything like that, um, but why not give it a go? And then I did get into the program and I was like, okay, well, let's see what, what happens here. Um, and yeah, that was it. Yeah. Charity entrepreneurship has had quite a few hits now. Uh, I think you may, you might be the the biggest hit or the most legible hit, at least, uh, where kind of just from 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 the very, very beginning, you've, you've been hitting it completely out of the park. But what, what are some of the other cool projects that they've gotten off the ground, in, in, in your opinion, maybe other than the ones that we've already done interviews on? So I think FEM, Family Empowerment Media, mm. is doing really cool work. Uh, Fortify Healthy also had a role in that, which yeah. has been um, Give Well Incubated. Fish Welfare in- Initiative mm, seem to yeah. be having a lot of impact. I'm less familiar with like the the newer cohorts, um, totally. but the ideas seem really cool. Yeah, excited to find out what they get up to. Yeah, what is it that the incubation program is bringing to the table? I, it, it does seem like, given that track record, it's helping. <laughs> it's helping people do do stuff that I think otherwise they would not have have been doing. I wonder whether, you know, having that menu at the beginning of kind of pre-screened ideas that they think are extremely promising based on, you know, somewhat expert judgment. Yeah. Do you think that is really pushing people towards ideas that have a lot of promise and, you know, maybe are going to be relatively straightforward to have a big impact with? Yeah, I think so. I think that the ideas are a huge added value. I think it's really hard to come up with good ideas. Yeah. Um, and they have like a really systematic process for prioritizing. I think it's also just like making it feel possible to people. Like I would never have founded a nonprofit on my own. I wouldn't have known what I needed to know. I would have felt completely lost. And yeah, just guiding you through the steps of the process and making it doable. Yeah, is really, really impactful, I think. Yeah. What's some of the key advice that charity entrepreneurship gives most of the groups going through the incubation uh, program, if, if there's any kind of general advice? Yeah. Hmm. There's, there's a lot of advice. Um, <laughs> and I, I do, we do think about it a lot. Like I, I find myself thinking back to like the way that like certain ways of thinking about things were framed and how to approach things. I think one thing that I come back to a lot is like the importance of coming back to the theory of change, kind of challenging it, testing it, and the things we learned about like the kind of monitoring and evaluation and linking that to the theory of change. Another thing is like what not to focus on. You know, this is a bit of a trivial example, but like you don't need to spend a long time thinking about your website or your logo. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the incubation program, we made websites for our nonprofits in just like a few hours. And you just really need to like focus on figuring out, is your intervention going to work? Um, how, like, how can you make it work? And yeah, being really action orientated. Got it. Yeah. Is there any specific advice that they gave to you guys when, when you were going through the through the program? One advice that I think we took quite seriously was just to like move quite quickly and just test it out. Like, you know, you could imagine starting up a nonprofit and spending a long time in the like early phases of figuring everything out in detail. But in the second month we were in Malawi, uh, we were just testing our theory of change, the first part of it. And I think that was really good advice because we learned a lot more, a lot more quickly by doing that. And we could have wasted months and months and months otherwise. Yeah. 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 
Are there any other charity ideas that you'd be really excited to see people start? What was was maybe the second second on your list if you weren't going to do lead elimination? Do you remember? I'm pretty excited to see what other like public health policy and regulatory intervention ideas come up. At the moment, the CE research team is looking into organophosphate pesticides and other neurotoxicants to see if there's like a neglected intervention similar to leaps. So I'm I'm really excited to see what they find there. Yeah, I think that they've also looked at uh, was it. Taxation of tobacco mm-hmm. and taxation of alcohol, I think. Yeah. Obviously, those are other massive causes of ill health. Yeah. Potentially discouraging excessive consumption of those so it could be, uh, yeah, it could be really impactful. Yeah. Is it difficult to get into the program? What, what sort of stuff are they looking for among among applicants? Yeah. So they have a lot of a lot of applicants, and only a few make it onto the program each year. So it's pretty selective. I think they're looking for what they describe as people who are like ambitiously altruistic. So like ambitious, but really driven to have a large positive impact in the work that they're doing. They're looking for people who have good decision-making. They don't really care about experience particularly. Um, I think they found that that deep experience in a field doesn't necessarily correlate with having a successful nonprofit. Yeah, they definitely, they list all the things that they kind of prioritize on the website. And you can also do a quiz to find out if you might be a good fit for applying. And I think also the application process helps you prioritize career options like during the process. So I'd encourage people to apply even if they're just wanting to like think a bit more about whether it could be a good fit. Like I was saying before, I didn't think I would be a good fit. Yeah. It's a live program in London, right? So um, most of it, the program is remote, but there are two weeks in person. So you can apply living anywhere in the world. And for the remote part of it, they do make sure that it works for different time zones and that sort of thing. And then for the two weeks in person, they cover, you know, all the expenses and they also give stipends and that sort of thing and help with visas. So yeah. um, they, they're keen on having a very kind of international cohort. Yeah. Are they still helping you out these days or maybe have you ever kind of graduated and you know more about what you're doing than, than they do? We still definitely uh, ask for advice sometimes yeah. um, from the charitable entrepreneurship community and the people that work there themselves, because there are like you know people who are further along in the in the nonprofit stage, and right. so um, when it comes to you know hiring for you know, more senior roles or something that we haven't done before like that, we can get really helpful advice. Yeah, for a conflict of interest declaration, I am on the on the board of CE at the moment, so. Yeah. Well, where did you join the board? Was that before or after you did the... It was quite recently. Quite recently. Yeah. Okay, right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so you loved CE before you were on the board, not just yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> advertising it now that you have a... I suppose you don't have a financial interest. Uh, no. I don't know. No. Um, just have responsibility. Exactly. I guess for, for balance, maybe we should find something negative to say about the program. <laughs> uh, are there any weaknesses of it or uh, ways in which it wasn't as helpful as maybe you hoped? Mm, one thing I've noticed is that there's there does seem to be like a bit of a a feeling of like you need to work really really hard um okay. to have <laughs> to have a successful charity um i don't think that that would necessarily be endorsed but i feel like that comes across sometimes and i think that that is a bit a bit risky cuz burnout's like a real risk and i don't think it's necessarily true like i think you can have a balanced life and you know get a lot of work done and have a lot of impact um so that would be one thing that i would look out for but i i think that they would probably agree with that I mean, wouldn't really want to be communicating that, but I think it just kind of comes across so, in the culture of the thing of like right. moving fast and. So they're they're a little bit workaholic themselves, maybe. And I think so. That's so. kind of the culture that yeah. tends to be transmitted. But I think so. In reality, yeah, it does seem like you could work kind of nine to five on Leap, and it would be pretty successful. For it. Okay, <laughs> maybe not. Okay, all right, you could work nine to nine. <laughs> I, I think I think I could work reasonable hours, and it okay. would be fine. I think it's hard to it's hard to limit yourself when you know what you what know the stakes are what the stakes are. You know, every few weeks that we can bring get lead paint off the market sooner is is real impact, and so it can be quite hard to like 
balance knowing that mm. with having a normal healthy routine yeah 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 is that is that one of the most difficult parts of the of the work i think for me at the moment that's one of the di- most difficult parts of the work yeah but i don't think it has to be like that and i have an intention to to sort out my my work life balance so, yeah. <laughs> um and to have to something make... that you could stick with long term and yeah, feel happy yeah yeah it needs yeah. to be sustainable it's a it's a marathon so yeah yeah but i, I mean, do th- i do love it right it's so satisfying like Nothing brings me greater joy than hearing my manufacturer tell me that they've switched to lead-free. Um, <laughs> just like chasing those highs. No, I'm Did kidding. You, <laughs> well, I mean, you should have a bell that you ring every time we you, you get a result where it was leaded before and now it's not. Yeah. But no, it's it's like incredibly fulfilling and satisfying. And I think that's probably what makes it hard to balance sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is a perpetual issue. It's, it's very challenging. I mean, every, everyone who's doing really important work finds uh, where to draw the line between yeah. how much they're willing to put in and how, how much is healthy to put in. Mm. I, guess, I guess the thing I wouldn't want is for someone to not go into a high-impact job because they feel like they then couldn't do it nine to five. If that's mm. the deal breaker for you, you should definitely do the high-impact job and just work nine to five rather yeah. than not do something that's important so you don't have the stress of being near something that matters. Absolutely, yeah. I think nine to five you can is absolutely doable, yeah. Yeah. I guess... You're the co-executive director of Leap, so you're more likely to be a bottleneck. There's maybe more pressure on you to to work extra hours. But as a mm-hmm. as a staff member, mm-hmm. uh, it's like as, as a staff member who's just doing work on on the ground, it's less urgent for them to put in extra time, right? All right. Finally, let's talk about something random and different that you've done, which is sign the Giving What We Can pledge. Yeah, can, can you explain what that is for people who haven't heard of it? Yeah, so the Giving What We Can pledge is a commitment to donate 10% of your income throughout your life to charities that you think will do the most good with the money. Yeah. Okay. So uh, pledge to give 10%. It's forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I guess, pre-tax, uh, but you get to choose what charity you think is most impactful. Yeah. Um, yeah. When when did you take the pledge and, and what prompted you to do that? I took it in my, I think my second or third year of university. I'd known about it for a while, but I kind of hadn't taken it yet because I was like, it's a long time until I'm going to be earning any money, especially doing a medical degree. It takes like six years. Um, So I wasn't in a massive rush, but then I was involved in giving what we can chapter in Cambridge and I thought, oh, I might as well do it now. It just seemed like kind of a good idea. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the basic pitch is the benefit to the people who uh, yeah, exactly. benefit from the charity is much greater than the harm to you from the reduction in income given yeah. that you're living a comfortable life. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing that stood out to me was a statistic. I don't know if it's still true, but at the time, it was like the average graduate salary in the UK puts you in like the top 5% of income globally. So I knew that, you know, on a global scale, I would be very comfortable in my life and that that kind of additional 10% was not going to be a a deal breaker for me, whereas it could have a lot of impact elsewhere. And so it just seemed like a good idea. And it seemed like a good idea to do it when I was a student so that I would never really like notice, (laughs) notice the the decrease um, because I'd always be doing it. Yeah. Which, which charities have you ended up donating to since, since, since you signed? It changes year on year and I deliberate every year. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you deli- oh wow that's slightly bad given, given the importance of your time <laughs> i know um yeah sometimes it's been like give all recommended charities sometimes it's been um recommended animal charities um more recently sometimes charity entrepreneurship incubator charities i think that there's like a maybe like a good opportunity in an early stage of a of a charity where they're, they're not like big enough or established enough or track record enough to get funding from more established donors. And they're definitely not going to be funded by any of like the big EA type of funders. Um, and so looking out for those opportunities, I, f- I quite like doing. 
Yeah, I guess given your association with charity entrepreneurship, you're in a good place to be one of these sort of angel funders who provides a bit of money to things that are really early stage. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not that much money there. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess the, I mean, we were talking earlier about how it's plausible that you're delivering a year of healthy life for $14. I guess that's kind of always been part of the pitch for people taking the Give What We Can pledge or just donating to effective charities is that the impact that people might have by donating to these organizations to allow them to scale more quickly might be far larger than what people intuitively think. Like, Actually, if you if you sit with it for a minute, how much benefit that is to someone that they have a year, and not, not just a typical year, but actually a year at like peak health, that, that's the sort of benefit that you're providing to someone. And you're able to do it for $14, um, at least in these like more high risk, high return uh, giving strategies. It's actually, it's a little bit alarming. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not, on the one hand, it's an amazing opportunity and it makes you feel really good. On the other hand, it's a symptom of these amazing opportunities that are being uh, not taken or mm. these amazing things that really should be happening that would benefit people so much that uh, could just get get left there for lack of a uh, tiny amount of money. Yeah. Did you have any major reservations about taking the pledge? Not really. I think there was a thought of like, am I just doing this because I'm like relatively young and I don't really know how important this will be as a commitment later in my life and I'm being a bit naive or something like that? But I was also thinking, well, if I'm just being naive, let's roll with it. Um, mm. <laughs> it'll probably have a positive impact overall. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that really turned out to be true. I still think it's the right decision and I'm happy with it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that having 10% less income uh, meaningfully affects your well-being? I mean, it must affect it like a little bit, right? But uh, Not noticeably. noticeably yeah. yeah. You, you work for a non-profit now that's kind of early stage. I don't imagine you're raking in uh, income, but you nonetheless feel like it's kind of it's fine for you personally? Yeah, it's fine for me personally. Yeah, I mean, you just I, don't have expensive taste. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have expensive taste. Maybe like you know, if you have kids or something like that, calculus could change. But, yeah, it could yeah. get more challenging. Yeah. You're living in London, right? It's mm. not a cheap city. Mm. Um, but yeah, okay, you're just a, a reasonably frugal person by nature. I mean, mm, am I a reasonably frugal person by nature? I think I I, I think about it with my purchasing decisions. So yeah. like. I used to be one of those people who like every time they bought something, they'd be thinking, oh, this is a malaria net. Um, <laughs> uh, so I actually find it really We've helpful. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I find it really helpful just having like, okay, this is the set amount and I don't have to deliberate over every decision. And that's, I think, really nice for me. Yeah. Because one of the best arguments I've heard for not taking the Giving What We Can pledge, even from an impact uh, mm -hmm. point of view, is just that for many people... The kinds of people who are dedicated enough to this that they're seriously considering taking the Giving What We Can pledge, very often the thing that they can do that will have the biggest impact is to change their career, right? Is to start an organization mm. like Leap. Uh, and probably, I would guess that you're doing a lot more good through your work uh, re realistically than than you are by donating 10% of your, of your income. It might be like 10 or 100 times as much. And then some people argue... It's kind of it's maybe a distraction a bit to focus on on the giving rather than on the career change. And also, if you go into a role like being a nonprofit entrepreneur, then you or you might be more reluctant to do that if you know that you're only going to be able to keep ninety percent of what is potentially a much lower income mm. than you might have otherwise gotten anyway. So I think that that is maybe my one reservation is uh, for people taking the giving what we can pledge, even if they're like otherwise you know living in the UK and financially comfortable. Is just I wouldn't want that to come at the expense of someone doing something like what you've done, um, of, of trying to have a direct impact by by pursuing a really high impact career, even if that means earning quite a bit less than they might otherwise. Yeah. Hopefully, if that were like impacting a decision to do something really high impact, yeah. you'd be able to notice that and be like, that doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. And so I'll, you know, not donate that 10% because it will allow me to do this higher impact thing, something like that. Yeah. I guess people have different sort of takes on this. I feel mm -hmm. like 
it would be in the spirit of the pledge to mm. say, unfortunately, I can't keep this pledge anymore because now I'm dedicating my entire career to pursuing yeah. global health and development, for example, in a way that I didn't previously expect to. Yeah, um, you could think of it in a, like, I don't know if, what the <laughs> what the strict definition of the pledge is, but yeah. you could think of it in a way as like, um, you're taking a lower salary by by working at, right. in this role and that's kind of salary sacrificing in in place of um, making that donation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah given what Weekend's been doing pretty well recently, I think they've got 8,500 members now and uh, they actually, I think they might have had their biggest year last year because they got, I think, 1,500 or something uh, new oh, members. Wow. Uh, I think I should probably tell people I, I worked there many, many years ago, <laughs> back in 2012. Um, oh. And I think back then we were pretty happy to have 300 people join in a year. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's growing a lot faster than back in my day. That's awesome. Because, yeah, uh, final question on the Give More We Can thing. Have you found it useful to take the pledge specifically? I mean, you could donate 10% uh, just every year because you think it's a good idea without having uh, signed, up to the, signed up to the thing officially. Yeah, I like the pledge because it's like legible and something you can communicate about to other people as well. Mm. So I think it's helped friends and other people kind of consider taking it. It's nice to feel like it's a real thing that you're doing with other people. And it's nice, the kind of structure of it as well. It's like, okay, this is a thing I've decided to. It's not just like a thing I've decided now that I might change my mind on, or should it be a lower amount or a higher amount this year? It's like, this is what I'm doing. And it's just kind of clear and simple. So I, I like that it's like an actual thing as opposed to just like a decision that I've made. All right. Uh, we've been going for quite a while and should probably uh, wrap up and, uh, and get on home. Um, I suppose we've been talking about the burden of responsibility of doing something super important with your life and how that can weigh on you. But if somehow all of the world's problems had already been solved, um, what do you think you might be doing with your time or your career instead of what you're doing now? So, yeah, when I was younger, the thing I always said I wanted to do was be a mum, have loads of kids. So I think that's what I would do. Probably have like a bunch of children maybe homeschool for a bit. Just like, I would love that. That'd be so much fun. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't want to play computer games or something? <laughs> no. I think that would be so, that would be so great. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, do you think you'll have, uh, have kids despite your uh, commitment to your, to your work? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Probably just not as many. Not as many. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do you have a target number in mind? I'd quite like three kids. Yeah. yeah, I think that'd be nice. That's a reasonable family. That's yeah. uh, quite a lot of fulfillment. Yeah, that'd um, be great. Cool. My guest today has been Lucia Coulter. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Lucia. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. As I mentioned in the intro, if Leap's work sounded as great to you as it did to me, and you usually give to global health and wellbeing causes, and you haven't done your holiday giving yet, uh, you could do a lot worse than head to leadelimination.org uh, and give some lovely children the holiday gift of not getting lead poisoning. And Leap is about to hire a couple of project managers. So if you especially love Leap, uh, you could consider getting a job and working with them. Those job ads should go up on their website around the 20th of December. Uh, so in a week or so from, from when I'm recording this, this outro. But if you go to leadelimination.org slash jobs, uh, you can join a mailing list now and uh, just get notified in your email uh, directly when those ads go up if you're interested. As we mentioned in the blog post for this episode, some researchers at Founders Pledge, uh, which is a, a grant-making organization, estimated that, and I quote, Leap's programs are extremely cost-effective. We estimate that it costs $1.66 to prevent one child's lead exposure in expectation. Uh, as of August 2023, that makes Leap one of our most cost-effective charities. Uh, and here, I'll just, I'll just quote from an email from Lucia uh, on, on some of the complications involved in, in that estimate. She says, Founders Pledge did a cost-effectiveness analysis of around 10 of our programs and said, we estimate it costs $1.66 to prevent one child's lead exposure and expectation. 
It's a bit more complicated than it sounds though. Uh, based on my understanding of their analysis, it actually means $1.66 for a blood lead level reduction equivalent to an average child's blood lead level. Um, because our intervention reduces one source of lead exposure across a large population, it's more like $1.66 for reducing five children's lead exposure each by one fifth. Uh, but I don't think that simplification matters too much. The cost effectiveness analysis also includes discounting for the probability of our programs actually succeeding or not. All right, that was Lucia. Just a reminder, if you want to support this work, head to leadelimination.org. And if you enjoyed that episode, you might want to check out episode 153, Ellie Hassenfeld on two big picture critiques of GiveWell's approach and six lessons from their recent work. Um, episode 124 is a, is a solid one. Uh, Karen Levy on fads and misaligned incentives in global development. And an old favorite of my one, episode 111, Mushtaq Khan on using institutional economics to predict effective government reforms. I really got to listen to that one again. It's a, it's a personal, personal favorite. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell, with mastering and technical editing by Marla Maguire and Dominic Armstrong. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together, as always, by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Bye.